Welcome to today's podcast. Uh, my name is Glenn Deason. I'm a professor at the University of Southeastern Norway. And with me today is uh, uh, Ivan Kachanovsky, uh, a professor uh, focusing on uh, Ukrainian studies at the University of Ottawa. And um, yeah, you're Ukrainian, but also a citizen of uh, Canada, as I understand. Uh, anyways, uh, w- welcome. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you for the invitation. It is a pl- pleasure to uh, join your uh, podcast, which is again very interesting and very informative about conflict in Ukraine. Well, thank you. So, uh, well, as you know, when COVID began, everyone seemingly became a virologist or an epidemiologist uh, overnight. And uh, the same when Russia invaded Ukraine last year, everyone suddenly became a Ukrainian expert, you know, uh, going on TV, uh, being presented as experts, even though having no background in the country. Uh, but um, uh, again, everyone being certain about all the facts of Ukraine as they were certain about their own virtue. So uh, so it's good to have yeah, an actual uh, expert, not only, of course, uh, you're from Ukraine, but you're a professor specializing in Ukrainian studies and researching topics like democratization, uh, political communication, communication conflicts again with focus on primarily Ukraine, and if I'm not mistaken, you would probably also the one academic who has been researching uh, the killings of Maidan by the snipers to the greatest detail. Uh, at least this is when I started to follow a lot of your work uh, because you also have been tracking the and following the legal proceedings in great detail, so also documenting a lot of this. I saw you publishing a lot of the videos as well from the the trials. And during these legal proceedings, um, um, well, I would argue this is a very important part of your research because uh, the legal proceedings after the sniper killings, uh, you know, this was the origin of the the war, which has been going on for nine years now. Uh, And um, uh, anyways, today we're going to cover a lot of this uh, and explore the conflict which is going on in Ukraine. Uh, Again, going on since 2014 or some might say earlier since 2004. Uh, but you know, before we delve into this, I thought yeah, we could perhaps focus on the uh, Maidan massacre as uh, by these snipers. And uh, again, the country will be overstated why it's very significant because this also became the legitimacy for the West to support the coup in uh, Kiev, which toppled President Yanukovych. And uh, indeed, in the West, we now... We, we claim it's not a coup, uh, and we, when we claim this, we always cite the killings on Maidan as the reason for why it was not a coup. So the narrative is that, uh, as everyone knows, President Yanukovych ordered the killings of protesters, uh, but none of the Western media has actually shown any interest in the trials that actually followed, uh, even despite this being you know, what kicked off a nine-year-long war. Uh, it strikes me as strange, and from my own experience, whenever the media... Uh, whenever there's a big media blackout, it's usually because the media doesn't like what it sees. So, uh, so again, it's a great privilege to have you. Uh, again, the, I would say the top scholar has been following the legal proceedings of these uh, uh, killings on Maidan. So, I thought perhaps we could start there. If you can, uh, yeah, perhaps explain what happened on Maidan and uh, what you learned from this from following the trials that followed. And um, again, doc- you've documented it very well in your work and. Yeah, please don't shy away from any details. So, uh, yeah, I'll pass it over to you. Yeah, thank you. Um, I was researching Maidan Massacre since uh, it actually began. I was watching this live from Canada. 
that it was very late uh, at night uh, during uh, the Maidan massacre when it happened, and I was watching uh, this uh, events during the Maidan even before when violence started on November 30th, 2013, after Maidan um, became a mass uh, movement of, of protest against uh, government Yanukovych. And I specialized in researching conflicts and political violence in Ukraine since I wrote my uh, doctoral dissertation in the United States under the direction of uh, Simon Mati Lipset. And uh, I uh, wrote about conflicts in uh, and, um, historical conflicts, historical violence, including World War II, Soviet Great Terror, UNUPA, mass murder by the UNUPA organizations in Ukraine, in particular in Western Ukraine. I also wrote about war in Donbass, in annexation of Crimea, um, and I research current war uh, between Russia and Ukraine. So, so uh, this is my main area of uh, research. And Maidan Massacre is also one of the main areas of research because uh, this is a crucial issue to understand origins of the conflicts in Ukraine, which um, followed after the Maidan Massacre which was used to overthrow the Yanukovych government and led uh, afterwards to a kind of reaction by Russia and uh, specifically annexation of Crimea by Russia, uh, which was a Russian region. And uh, in addition to this, Russia also started to support separatists in Donbass uh, and um, another pro-Russian region of Ukraine, uh, which also led, um, which also uh, this conflict escalated also into civil war in Donbass, and now there is a war between Russia and Ukraine, which is, I think, a very dangerous development, which I wanted to kind of also uh, kind of, uh, it was easy to prevent, but unfortunately now this uh, conflict is uh, going on, and I uh, quite, uh, uh, I think, um, uh, astonished uh, about also representation of this war and how origins of this conflict are ignored basically by the media, mainstream media and a lot of politicians and even by a lot of experts who, uh, who became overnight experts about conflict in Ukraine and have very little knowledge about what happened. So um, based on my analysis, which I analyze all publicly available data, about Maidan massacre, so I examine all the videos from the different numerous uh, sources which are publicly available, including actually videos. Some of the videos I, which I examined were from Norwegian uh, television a company. I found uh, in Norwegian uh, television website uh, company website. I think what this uh, called. I'm not sure its name, but uh, an uh, an or something. This is main television network in in Norway and. And the videos were quite uh, quite uh, astonishing because they show actually how protesters were shot also from direction of uh, buildings which uh, kind of which were controlled by Maidan forces and not by the uh, government police. And these videos were not shown uh, at the Maidan massacre trial. And the Maidan massacre trial, another area of my research, because it provided crucial evidence about Maidan massacre and. Uh, I was researching Maidan massacre trial since 2015 when they started, and uh, just last uh, October uh, the uh, the trial basically ended. Examination of all evidence, there was closing arguments, and afterwards uh, there is uh, now uh, uh, recess and or basically break to reach decision uh, by the jury and by the judges. So I think decision in this Maidan massacre trial will be issued very soon, and uh, maybe within the next uh, several months. And I think this is a very crucial issue. Kind of, and the another issue, it was just quite unbelievable to watch all this Maidan massacre trial 
proceedings on YouTube, they are televised. Basically, they are broadcast online, but they are never basically reported by the media, Ukrainian media or Western media, and this also includes Russian media. Basically, nobody reported about this Maidan massacre trial. Even so, this was a trial of the century in Ukraine because of a very important issue which has a tremendous consequences. And so I rely on the evidence from this trial to, to see actually what this evidence tell us about Maidan massacre, who was responsible for this mass murder in Ukraine on February 20th, 2014, which led afterwards to all these conflicts in Ukraine, which now also escalated into, uh, into war between uh, Russia and Ukraine after Russia illegally invaded Ukraine uh, in, uh, on August, uh, sorry, on February 24th, 2022. And the evidence is uh, just remarkable, and this is overwhelming evidence revealed by the Maidan massacre trial and investigation in Ukraine, which is uh, not reported by the media. And uh, this includes testimonies of, of Maidan protesters who were wounded. So these are people who were wounded during uh, Maidan massacre. So they saw what happened. They uh, they have no reason to to kind of testify against uh, Maidan leaders because they were, they have opposite incentive, obviously, to implicate Yanukovych government and his forces. Uh, who, are, who were blamed for this massacre. Uh, but they testified at the Maidan massacre trial and investigation that they were shot from uh, from buildings which were controlled by the opposition, basically by Maidan opposition at that time, and uh, or that they saw snipers in these locations. They witnessed themselves. And this is not just uh, just few uh, Maidan protesters. This is absolute majority of Maidan protesters who were wounded during Maidan massacre. So this is like kind of just unbelievable. Uh, I have and I have video compilation of their testimonies with, with such uh, revelations that they saw snipers in these buildings, that they were shot by snipers in these buildings which are controlled by uh, Maidan opposition. And in particular, they name uh, Hotel Ukraina, which was a very large building, which was located next to Maidan, and I stayed in this hotel many times when I visited Ukraine for doing my research and for just or for just vacations because this was very convenient, very nice located hotel in the downtown, in the very center of Ukraine. And um, and this uh, hotel actually was controlled by the Maidan opposition during the massacre. And as people, uh, when I presented this evidence that there were snipers located in these buildings. They deny basically that this. Uh, that first, they denied that there were any snipers located there. But when I presented testimonies and presented other evidence, they started to say that basically uh, anybody can go there. And so, it, it, basically, they said that uh, anybody can be a, a, a sniper in this location because there was no control by anybody by Maidan opposition. And this is uh, totally against all the evidence because. Um, Svoboda party, which is far-right party of, uh, in Ukraine, before the Maidan massacre, a few weeks before Maidan massacre, they issued official statement on their website saying that they took control uh, over this hotel and they, they, they say they're going to start to guard these hotels. And this is not just statement. They, um, there are videos of Svoboda leaders, deputies from the parliament, sending guard basically at the entrance of hotel 
and not allowing any uh, any uh, anybody else to enter with uh, with exception of Maidan snipers and with, with exception of foreign journalists. So they would basically not allow even Maidan protesters who wanted to capture uh, snipers located uh, who were shooting Maidan protesters from Hotel Ukraina. So Svoboda leaders and other guards which are, uh, who were linked to Svoboda, they prevented Maidan protesters going to upper floors of the hotel and trying to capture snipers or, or shoot snipers and so on. And this is, uh, again, this is supported by videos. There are videos like uh, BBC video shows this. Uh, uh, you have also French television video showing this uh, kind of vendors. You have other videos which show that this uh, hotel was guarded at the time of Maidan massacre by, uh, by Maidan opposition, in particular from Svoboda party. And there are statements also by uh, uh, head of Maidan self-defense unit in Hotel Ukraina, who said that they guarded this hotel since January of 2014. And there is also a statement from a security, um, uh, statement from a hotel staff, um, one of the managers of Hotel Ukraina, who said that this hotel was uh, was guarded by uh, by Maidan forces and there was no uh, any Berkut snipers or any government snipers in this hotel. So this is just supported by all this evidence. Which uh, that this hotel was guarded by my, by Maidan forces, in particular from Svoboda, and the snipers were located in this hotel, uh, Hotel Ukraina, at the time when um, Maidan protesters were shot. And I found videos uh, of this, uh, of this uh, basically, of such snipers in the Hotel Ukraina, linked to far right forces, and there are, and in particular, shooting into the action of Maidan protesters. And there are testimonies, as I mentioned, of absolute majority of Maidan, uh, wounded Maidan protesters. And this very interesting development, again, just give you one example of, of this is for me like Orwellian, just watching this, because um, there was a famous video of Maidan Massacre, most famous video of Maidan Massacre, which was shown on all national television networks, basically on all major national television networks in, in the Western countries and in many other countries, which was used to show basically as evidence that Maidan protesters were killed and massacred by, by government snipers. And this video was just about one minute long video, which was filmed by Belgian television, uh, television channel called um, um, VIT channel uh, from the Hotel Ukraina. And at the Maidan massacre trial, they showed uh, all uh, this video, entire video, which was about uh, one hour long, almost one hour long video. And, uh, and the video was never shown by any uh, television. Kind of, uh, this, uh, I received this video from a Belgian journalist after, uh, after it was shown at the Maidan Massacre trial, I requested him, kind of contacted him, and he provided me with such video for my research. So th this is video which is quite astonishing because it shows actually what happened. Well, what actually what happened, and it shows evidence of Maidan snipers in the Hotel Ukraina shooting Maidan protesters. And this is, was never shown by any, again, by any television networks, and I posted this on my website, uh, academic website on YouTube. And this is a video which, um, for instance, there is a passage, you can see in this video that a group of Maidan protesters are led by two other protesters to the site of the massacre. For no reason, they are very loud, they are very, kind of insistent in trying to lead this group of Maidan protesters to the site of massacre in front of basically of cameras of Western journalists and other journalists. 
And this, uh, Madame Potestas, group Madame Potestas, they look into Hotel Lucrino, they, they are very worried about going there, and one of them shoots very loud, uh, do not, basically do not go there, because I, sh I, saw, I saw snipers in the Hotel Lucrino shooting all Madame Potestas. I saw gun flashes, so he, this, he says this loudly. And afterwards, they, they, when they advance, this group try to advance very slowly, and very cautiously, they are, there is a video, uh, this is the same video, Belgian television video, which shows that this group of protesters very narrowly uh, kind of avoided being shot at from the Hotel Ukraina. A bullet impacts at uh, three near this group just um, by accident. So, um, and they, uh, this Madame protesters turn back towards Hotel Ukraina and say very loudly, to the snipers, do not shoot at us. Uh, there are snipers shooting and so on. Do not shoot at us. So this basically means that they know the snipers were from from their own um, from their own uh, uh, Maidan forces, not any other government snipers. And afterwards, this uh, when the same protesters went further, they would be massacred. Basically, uh, many of them. This was a group of about ten people. And um, and uh, several of them were killed, and uh, and almost everybody else was wounded, and uh, and they also testified the Maidan massacre trial. They were shot from Hotel Ukraina and other buildings controlled by Maidan forces, or that they were that they saw snipers there, and which was confirmed by this video, Belgian television video, but it again never shown. Another example, again very astonishing example of video, which which was shown at the Maidan massacre trial. Kind of uh, the same video, which I think was uh, uh, video which was shot by uh, filmed by BBC, and BBC they showed a Maidan sniper shooting from uh, from the Hotel Ukraina uh, into the direction of Maidan protesters, and um, and also uh, into BBC crew. And uh, BBC and, and Maidan protesters run away and they shooting sniper basically after they are shot from this hotel. And the uh, British journalist uh, says that he saw the sniper located in Hotel Ukraina uh, on this 11th floor, and this sniper was wearing a Maidan-style uh, helmet, green helmet. And this is kind of, again, this was reported by British, uh, by British television, by BBC, but what was not reported by any media, uh, Western media, is that in this, uh, in this room, this was a room uh, which was occupied at the time of Maidan massacre by uh, one of the leaders of Svoboda party. So this sniper was located in the room which was occupied by one of the leaders of far-right party in Ukraine. And uh, this was not just uh, kind of some kind of information which was made up or kind of or uncertain and so on. This was actually a Ukrainian official investigation. They revealed this information in 2015, one year after the massacre. They revealed that this room was occupied by by uh, Svoboda uh, party leader uh, at the time of the Maidan massacre. And this video, which, which shows them shooting uh, from this from this um, from this video from this room, and um, but again, what was not reported and what I showed in my in my study and in my video appendixes, that the Ukrainian television network called ICTV, major television network, they filmed the same uh, room. They filmed snipers in the same room, and they said during Maidan massacre, and they said that these snipers were shooting Maidan protesters in the back. So this is so this is like evidence that they were shot in the back from the same room, which was occupied by 
um, deputy from the far right party. And this is not, again, this is not yet the end of the story. This uh, was a testimony of one of the Maidan protesters who said that he saw gunshots from this window, the same window of, on the 11th floor from the Hotel, uh, Hotel Ukraine, and that Maidan protesters were falling at the same time. So this means that they were shot from the same um, from the same window, which was uh, of the hotel room, which was occupied by um, right Swoboda deputy, and uh, and there was even more striking revelation during the Maidan massacre trial. Again, never reported by any media, is that um, Maidan protester who was filmed by this BBC uh, television television crew, uh, television uh, uh, news television. Uh, uh, Journalist uh, from this video when the snipers were shooting from this window, he he was filming this video and he it, it, he's easy to recognize and he actually was filmed along with other uh, protesters who came from Volinia, uh, Maidan Self Defense Company from my native Volinia region in Western Ukraine, and he testified during Maidan massacre trial that after uh, he and other protesters uh, ran um, away from. Uh, because they noticed the sniper shooting uh, into Maidan protesters and BBC crew, and he specifically mentioned that he was recognized himself, himself in this video. He said that other Maidan protesters told him that this sniper was our sniper. So, so and and he said that after afterwards, when he was looking into windows in the Hotel Ukraina, he saw in another room on I think six or some another floor of Hotel Ukraina. There was another sniper who, uh, who with a rifle, who who made um, kind of who, who showed to other Maidan protesters not to make any fuss about this, basically not to stop shooting about snipers. They basically just given signs signs to Maidan protesters to basically to not to reveal the location of the snipers in the hotel Ukraina, which again demonstrates that this was this that they were this were not government snipers this, this was actually from Maidan forces because afterwards um, nothing happened there was no investigation about this Svoboda leader uh, room any connections uh, and government investigation denied that there were any snipers located in the Hotel Ukraina even so there are videos of them shooting from the Hotel Ukraina there are videos of them during the uh, during the massacre Including uh, with hunting weapons and with Kalashnikov type of weapons, but this and the admissions by Maidan snipers, including from Georgia, that they uh, they shot Maidan protesters from Hotel Ukraina and other locations which are controlled by Maidan protesters. So this is just one example of one. Um, this is the snipers confessing, or yes, yes, this this were like snipers from um, uh, from uh, Georgia. Who, uh, admitted that they were members of sniper groups during Maidan massacre. They said that they were working for Maidan uh, uh, opposition. They, they were given orders by Maidan leaders to massacre both police and protesters. And they said that they were based in Hotel Ukraina along with other uh, locations. So this, and they admitted this publicly in Italian uh, uh, television um, program, a documentary which was shown by on uh, one of the main Italian television. Networks in this documentary later they also admitted this in Macedonian television interviews, in uh, in uh, Israeli documentary, and later in the American documentary, uh, which was shown also on U.S. television, one of the minor networks. And this is like testimonies. And again, there are no investigations, nothing. 
basically they uh, all the media and all the such experts basically claim that their testimonies were kind of made up that they were not real uh, snipers because even not real people because uh, kind of they are basic actors which who were hired to to make such testimony made up testimony and uh, again this uh, this story became uh, uh, very widely publicized by uh, so-called fact checkers websites as evidence that basically they are not real people they are just made up the stories made up and so on they they were never in Ukraine and even Ukrainian government investigation claims that they were never in Ukraine, that they basically just kind of uh, hired to say something. Um, people who, who are actors and working for, for Russia or something, again, without any evidence or just using some inconsistencies like some spelling mistakes or some video kind of inconsistencies and so on. And what was not reported actually by any media is that one of them, one of the um, self-admitted snipers Georgia, from Georgia, uh, he testified uh, uh, at the Maidan massacre trial uh, in a video. And this evidence was admitted by the trial. And, uh, so they basically, and he testified along with two other Georgian, uh, uh, again, self-admitted snipers. He testified for Ukrainian uh, uh, prosecutor general office um, via video testimony, uh, which was given in Belarus before the Russian um, Invasion of Ukraine on request of Ukrainian Prosecutor General Office investigating a massacre of a police, which took place at the same time on the Maidan. And so his testimony, video testimony, was admitted at the trial. And Ukrainian prosecution actually presented documents uh, saying basically that um, he was in Ukraine shortly before the Maidan massacre. So there is evidence that he crossed the border into Ukraine. And, and before, shortly before Maidan massacre, before Maidan took place, and he left Ukraine afterwards, and uh, and all, all, and he basically and other uh, self-admitted snipers claimed uh, or stated that they actually uh, they entered Ukraine under false ID, under false documents, without crossing uh, Ukrainian like security or border control. They 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 basically said that during Maidan massacre they were kind of. Uh, let to pass border control without any uh, without, without any surrendering their their documents or their border their actual passport or or, uh, or fake passports which uh, they used um, with fake names and they reveal all these names but again there was no investigation nobody actually examines this they claim that this is evidence because they they do not have any border crossing confirmation during Maidan massacre that they were not in Ukraine. Even so, they said that they were uh, kind of, um, they crossed the border illegally. Basically, they were led by Maidan leaders, uh, not uh, through official channel, but without any document check. And this is like, again, nobody even cares, nobody even kind of, uh, takes this in consideration. And, and evidence of this, actually one, that he was in Ukraine is confirmed. And uh, But a German, um, a German, a public television, uh, what the uh, main television program of RD, so-called fact-checking program, they claim that he was in prison in uh, Georgia at the same time, so he could not be in Ukraine. Even so, Ukrainian investigation confirmed his testimony in uh, in Italian television documentary and in Macedonian television documentary and, and uh, for, uh, for the Maidan uh, massacre trial and investigation that he was in Ukraine uh, shortly before um, before. Um, Madan massacre, and he said that he was uh, again very important testimony because he said that 
uh, here came to Ukraine before Maidan, even before Maidan, specifically to locate positions for snipers. And he said that they selected Hotel Ukraina and uh, like and other buildings on Maidan as potential locations of for snipers because he was uh, he was sniper in Georgian army. So this is like again testimony which has uh, which was totally suppressed and totally denied. Uh, kind of um, when he made this testimony in television uh, documentaries and uh, now testimony basically was admitted as evidence of the Maidan massacre trial and he testified and this confirmation that he was actually in Ukraine before this which 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 is a very important kind of evidence but uh, there is nothing no kind of um, no media reports no reaction and this is just another example quite astonishing example of what was um, what was happening and how this massacre is misrepresented. Another, just give you another illustration. Um, there is a famous documentary, uh, Winter on Fire, which was uh, nominated for Oscar. Uh, um, uh, Oliver Stone, is it? No, this is a different one. Uh, this oh, yeah, sorry. Oh, by the way, I'll just have to interrupt one second as uh, yeah, Alexander uh, Mercurius has uh, joined us. Unfortunately, was some uh, delays. Uh, so sorry for the interruption. Uh, <coughs> sorry, sorry for the interruption, Professor Kanchanovsky. Um, oh, you're muted, Alexander. Sorry. Anyway, I am. I am indeed muted. <laughs> Professor Kanchanovsky, I I owe you a great apology. Uh, a great apologies for my late joining, but I'm very delighted to be here as well. Yeah, thank you. So we have we haven't gone on for too long. Uh, uh, the professor's only been discussing uh, primarily the. Yeah, I, 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 I understood. I followed very, very yeah. well. And of course, I'm very familiar with Professor Gachanovsky's work. And it's uh, quite fascinating because, again, the major, from the trials that followed, which uh, hasn't been much coverage of it all, uh, there's a majority of the witnesses say that the shootings comes from the the, uh, the positions held by the Maidan uh, movement. And uh, uh, again, the, the, the testimonies corroborate this. Uh, the videos showing the shooting shows this. Uh, and the professor was just uh, talking about the admission by the snipers, which set up firing positions. So, uh, but the, there was another, I, I read one of your articles where there was a reference to Svoboda, which is the yeah, one of the more yeah, na nationalist parties uh, uh, in Ukraine, where the... Where they have, uh, where they yeah, refer to conversations with, uh, uh, with well, what was it, Westerners uh, or, or or Western governments who had uh, explained that uh, what was it uh, that uh, they would um, not intervene unless there were killings or uh, uh, or unless there were like hundred dead uh, protesters, uh, there wouldn't be much they would do be able to do in terms of uh, uh, yeah, for forcing down the government, uh, something along those lines. Yes, exactly. This was uh, quite, again, an, another example of astonishing revelation, which was never reported by any major Western media, which is uh, quite unbelievable, because these are two leaders of our far-right Svoboda party in Ukraine. And um, one of them um, was also leader of Maidan, one of the leaders of Maidan uh, protest, the Maidan. And another uh, another one from this far-right Svoboda leaders was deputy head of Ukrainian parliament. So he was very important in uh, this uh, what to remove or impeach Yanukovych, which took place after uh, Maidan massacre, because Yanukovych was slain by Maidan, for Maidan massacre, and they used specifically this to impeach Yanukovych uh, without any investigation, without any evidence. And he was the one who was 
presiding over this um, kind of uh, session of the Madan Parliament, which was very crucial. And um, sorry, before before this session, he presided uh, not this session, but he was presiding over previous session, which um, uh, right after the Madan massacre, which blamed the um, kind of uh, which blamed Yanukovych and his government forces for for this massacre. And uh, he and uh, and this leader of Soboda Party. They uh, uh, said in uh, their separate interviews, which were uh, published by uh, two Ukrainian uh, journalists in uh, in a book about Maidan, and uh, in this in Ukraine, and this uh, journalists are pro Maidan journalists, and they interviewed basically various Maidan leaders about Maidan events, different Maidan events, and this two uh, leaders of Svoboda Party said in their separate interviews that a few weeks before the Maidan massacre. They met with a Western representative. They did not name this representative, but they said that uh, they met with this representative and they had discussion um, when uh, Western uh, policy would change towards uh, Yanukovych government, because uh, they said already there were few protesters killed. And uh, they said when Western, but there was no reaction from the West. They asked when uh, when there would be change in the policy, and they had basically they said there was like a basically like negotiations or like uh, or some kind of uh, uh, kind of uh, discussions between with this Western representative. Uh, how many people would, would need to need to be killed in order to for Western policy to change and to end basically recognition of of the Yanukovych government? And they said we discussed like five people. Said Western representative said not enough. Like 20, not enough, 20 is not enough. So they ended with uh, with 100. So they said this in their interviews. They basically decided before massacre that 100 people killed, uh, victims would be would be a number which would uh, lead to change of, um, of uh, Western policy towards Ukraine and towards recognition of uh, Yanukovych government. And this is exactly what happened. After the Maidan massacre, there was immediately declaration by Maidan opposition about um, 70, 100. So they said that the Maidan protesters were having a hundred. Even so, the number of killed Maidan protesters was less than 100. But they included people who were who died in uh, in other places in Ukraine, who died from uh, health-related uh, issues before Maidan massacre or in other areas. They also, um, they also included even one of the uh, administrators from a party of region office in this uh, who was killed during, by Maidan protesters, basically. So, so they created this um, kind of a, a reference to heavenly hundred, basically, which would mean 100 protesters killed. And uh, and immediately afterwards, Western policy changed. Uh, the Western governments, including the US government, by the administration, immediately blamed Yanukovych for this massacre. And uh, in his uh, memoirs, Biden uh, uh, said that he called Yanukovych uh, Right after the Maidan massacre, and told Yanukovych that he have to leave not only his president position as president of Ukraine, but also he have to leave Ukraine because he would be basically blamed for, for he he blamed uh, Yanukovych for the Maidan massacre, and uh, and European Union did the same. Even so, there was agreement signed by Yanukovych and leaders of opposition and leaders of uh, European Union uh, countries like from France, uh, Germany, and Poland 
to, to, uh, to have a peaceful transition in which you have early presidential elections, in which there would be coalition government and investigation of the Maidan massacre would take place and there would be withdrawal of, uh, of forces from, uh, from the downtown of Kyiv, but also disarmament, disarmament of Maidan protesters. But this is never implemented. There was no investigation taking place under auspices of um, Council of Europe as was uh, was written in this agreement. There was uh, afterwards Yanukovych was blamed for this massacre, and this was used to overthrow kind of him uh, using this uh, vote in the parliament. Even so, this vote was um, was again not un uh, under any uh, uh, consistent. It was not based on any constitutional uh, provision. It was illegal under Ukrainian constitution because it uh, did not. There was no reason under Ukrainian constitution to impeach Yanukovych, and again, it did not follow any procedure uh, which was specified in the constitution and Ukrainian laws, and it also lacked a constitutional majority, which was required by this uh, to impeach Yanukovych. But what, what was also not mentioned by uh, by this again by any basically major media in the in the West is that uh, uh, Yanukovych fled not because he was responsible for Maidan massacre as they claimed, but because um, uh, there were assassination attempts against him, and this was revealed by other trials which took place. Uh, Yanukovych was initially not even charged with Maidan massacre. Only later, few years ago, he was charged with Maidan massacre. But before this, he was uh, he was a witness. He actually testified as a witness as a Maidan massacre trial. And he also said that this was uh, basically he blamed Maidan opposition, but he did not reveal any specific evidence, uh, kind of uh, in support of of his statements. But I think very important that during this Maidan, uh, actually during other trial when he was charged with state treason for basically um, providing a letter to uh, to Russia to intervene in Crimea, uh, which was used by the Ukrainian. Prosecutor General Office to charge uh, Yanukovych with this uh, uh, state treason. And during this trial, there was over various evidence by witnesses and by people from, for instance, Harikov, <coughs> Yanukovych after Maidan massacre. They testified that there were assassination attempts against him. There were several assassination attempts. For instance, his motorcade was shot at and bodyguard was almost wounded. He was likely hit in, in um, and he was able to. Uh, uh, he was uh, his bullet hit one of his uh, his uh, guns, and so he, he basically he miraculously survived. And this was motivated of Yanukovych. Uh, and uh, another assassination plan was um, taking place in Kharkiv, where Yanukovych um, flew from Kiev after Maidan massacre. And afterwards, there was another um, uh, testimony that uh, uh, helicopter pilots told um, uh, the judges at this trial that uh, they received order from. Uh, from uh, head, uh, new head of Ukrainian government, uh, temp temporary president of Ukraine, to basically to shut down, uh, to shut down, shut down uh, uh, um, helicopter with Yanukovych if if uh, they would not land him uh, again in one of the locations under order from a new government. And so and they refused basically to do this, and they were able to to kind of flew, and uh, Yanukovych fled uh, to to Russia. But there are like testimonies again about this assassination attempts, and even uh, not only by uh, his former bodyguards who who stayed in Ukraine or and uh, and joined new government, or by helicopter pilots again who stayed in Ukraine and have no reason to kind of to uh, testify in favor of Yanukovych. But there was also testimony by former. Uh, president of Ukraine, first president of Ukraine, Leonid Kravchuk, who again supported Maidan and has no reason to testify in favor of Yanukovych. He testified in this style 
that before the Maidan massacre, he received anonymous call from somebody who said, who, who told him that there is a plan called Cherseshtu plan to uh, basically assassinate Yanukovych and uh, and, and this uh, basically this was confirmed later by events which took place, assassination attempts. And this is very important because Ceausescu was removed and assassinated, basically executed uh, after the similar kind of event which took place in Romania in 1989, when um, uh, there were mysterious snipers who massacred a lot of protesters against um, against Ceausescu communist government. And these snipers were basically blamed to be uh, working for security services of, um, of Ceausescu government. But actually, after investigation, was not able to find any evidence to support this. And only in a recent few years, actually, uh, leaders of this uh, of new government who overthrew Ceausescu, they were charged with, uh, with uh, this massacre, basically, for using false flag uh, kind of uh, massacre because they, they they were the ones who basically created this uh, kind of um, and ordered uh, other units basically to shoot into, my, into their own protesters to create kind of a position and this is what similar what happened with uh, with uh, in UK so there is a very close similarity in this regard but this again was never never reported by uh, by uh, major media and a lot of people uh, when they try to kind of to look into Ukraine, they have all this kind of image of Ukraine as uh, as very different from what I actually do, uh, what I actually know based on my research, very long research about conflicts and violence in Ukraine, and specifically about Maidan massacre and other cases of violence. And this is just just one example. There are many other examples as well. I must say the whole uh, narrative around when Yanukovych uh, fled, it's, uh, it's, it's quite interesting because uh, often we hear that the uh, argument, well, it wasn't a coup because he fled, but yes, but why, why, why did you flee? If, if, you know, if they're, if they're killing, if, you know, he's about to be assassinated uh, by the Maidan movement, then obviously uh, fleeing doesn't contradict coup. It supports mm -hmm. the... The hypothesis of a coup, but but there's also been these other arguments around it. I remember I forgot who it was. Uh, it was maybe it was Brit British Foreign Minister, someone in the British government at least said that this uh, removal of Yanukovych was fully constitutional. But again, the Ukrainian constitution is very you know it's black and white. You can read it, and they had to walk it back afterwards, saying, well, obviously it wasn't constitutional. They didn't follow any of mm -hmm. uh, the directions they had to. And then there's also the argument that it was you know democratic revolution. I mean, people were standing up. But even the BBC, they had to cite polling, found that uh, the, the protest did not have majority support. And that was the protest on Maidan. Uh, even fewer would have supported the actual toppling mm -hmm. of a president against the constitution. So, but again, the whole idea as well that this is uh, the norm, that you have a popular uprising. So you have a you know ten so few tens of thousands in Kiev, and they should overrule the democratic elect the president, uh, you know, of 40 million people in the country. It's uh, it's very strange. Uh, we wouldn't call that, uh, you know, democratic. Uh, when it happens in the U.S., we call it insurrection. If you have people flooding into the uh, the capital, it's not okay. Well, I guess this is a democratic uprising. They can over they can topple the democratic government. It's very strange, but uh, uh, but also I guess the the key component of removing Yanukovych obviously was. The, the killings on Maidan. And uh, I, actually, on on that, I, I remember back when it happened, there was this uh, leaked phone call. Uh, again, I'm not sure if they walked it back afterwards, so I uh, yeah, apologize for my ignorance. But at that time, there was, a, I think, 11-minute phone call, which was 
uh, I guess hacked, I'm guessing, by the Russians and leaked, in which the EU foreign affairs chief at that time, which was Catherine Ashton, she was in a conversation with the Estonian uh, foreign affairs minister, uh, Urmas Payet, I think, and uh, and they were discussing uh, that, uh, oh, well, the, the the shootings don't appear to be from Berkut, uh, the government uh, uh, special forces in, or police, but instead the, the snipers are on the side of the Maidan. They're the one killing the protesters. And they were, oh, gosh, this is uh, horrible. <laughs> and they were, well, what, what should we do about this? Again, I'm, I, have, I haven't followed this <laughs> to the same depth as you. So I'm not sure. Did, did, did they walk it back afterwards saying that they didn't mean it like this? Or or, or has, it, has that conversation moved forward at all? Or has it just been ignored? No, I think actually uh, this Estonian foreign minister here confirmed that this was a real conversation. Uh, yeah. But... Uh, there was a denial by the media after what they said that uh, this was uh, false information because they said that uh, uh, who was uh, Bohomolic, who was chief of Maidan Medics, basically uh, denied that she provided such information to, uh, to the Estonian foreign minister during his visit to Ukraine. But this is again, um, and this was taken at face value, even so uh, Bohomolic himself, herself uh, testified and uh, said in Ukrainian television interviews and media interviews that, uh, that there was evidence of snipers in Hotel Ukraina, that uh, she, she, she knew about this. And, uh, and, uh, and another Maidan doctor who, who actually headed Maidan, um, unit of Maidan doctors during Maidan massacre, um, his, and later became Minister of Health of Ukraine, he said the same, basically, he said that the Maidan protesters were shot by the same weapons, and using the same uh, with the same signature, basically, uh, this is also very crucial because medical forensic medical examination during Maidan massacre trial, again, which were not, never reported by the media, or um, uh, revealed that uh, absolute majority of Maidan protesters, almost all protesters, were shot from a very steep direction. So they had wounds which were very steep, uh, like uh, very big. Uh, a difference between anti-wound and exit wound. Um, so this means they were shot from buildings which exactly matches the locations in the buildings which are controlled by Maidan forces, like Hotel Ukraine and so on. And after the majority of Maidan protesters were shot not from the front, uh, from the actions which are horizontal actions by the police on the ground, Berkut police on the ground, on the same ground level, but they were shot from the back or from the side, left or right side. Again, from the, from the areas which are controlled by Maidan forces, which I also identified in my original study of Maidan massacre, uh, but this was never reported. In addition to this, uh, again, a forensic examination revealed that uh, the bullets which were used to, to shoot Maidan protesters, they were from um, bullets which, uh, which included uh, bullets like hunting bullets, like pellets, which are used in hunting, or bullets from, from caliber, which could not be used uh, in any which do not match caliber even of Kalashnikovs, which were used by Berkut police during the Maidan massacre. This uh, this uh, caliber matches uh, NATO basic NATO caliber bullets, and uh, and um, and two protesters were killed actually by bullets which were um, uh, expanding bullets which are uh, used in hunting. And one bullet which was killed Maidan protester, he was killed by this bullet which was uh, had uh, corrosion. So it was basically uh, kind of. Um, basically, damaged bullets, which kind of hunting, which used in hunting and so on. And again, this was never reported by any media. And this is also quite astounding. And uh, initial ballistic examinations conducted by uh, uh, government experts, forensic experts, using computer-based system, which um, automatically matches bullets, 
bullet to bullet casing from sample of a database. They did not match any bullets from started from bodies of Madame Potesta to bullets any any Kalashnikov, any bullet samples from Kalashnikovs of entire Berkut regiment in Ukraine. But this again, this was never reported by any media, and, but this was revealed by the Madame Massacre and so on. But that's why this is quite astonishing to see such evidence, which would be totally ignored and totally kind of uh, totally omitted. Even so, there are many, many other types of evidence which supported the same finding, the same conclusions. Professor, can I just ask you to clarify that last point? Because some of the evidence that you're, you know, bringing to our attention, which has not been reported in the West, is actual evidence that was reported at the trial itself at the massacre trial. So it is evidence that has been presented to a court, maybe not a, a court that is administering you know, justice in quite the way that we would expect in some countries. But nonetheless, it's not just theories, it's just it's evidence which was presented to the court itself. And some of this relates to testimony, which was also presented to the court itself. Well, have I got this wrong? Yes, exactly. And uh, just give you one example. Uh, my own video appendix, from which I uh, which I wrote for my studies, which presented major conferences in the US, academic conferences in the US and Canada and Sweden about Maidan Massacre, and also which I published in a peer-reviewed article and as a book chapter. And now uh, I have a, uh, my uh, actually article is omitted by another peer-reviewed journal, which will be shortly published about Maidan Massacre trial and revelation. So this video appendix with testimonies of, um, of 80 witnesses was admitted by the Maidan Massacre trial and was shown as evidence at the Maidan Massacre trial. I had no involvement in this trial. I have, again, no, yeah. I do not provide such evidence, but it was publicly available on my websites, mm -hmm. academic websites like Academia, um, um, that you or ResearchGate and other websites, and this was used by, uh, again, as evidence by Mandan Massacre Tile. And this is just one example because they testified about, um, again, uh, all the testimonies, more than 80 testimonies at the time were about Mandan snipers. And uh, now I have the same video appendix with expanded to more than 100 video testimonies about Mandan snipers. And this is because this is quite unbelievable because they still deny. Even there were Maidan snipers. Even so, now there are more than 100 video testimonies after the Maidan massacre mm -hmm. about such snipers. I also created another video appendix during the Maidan massacre. There are almost, I think, almost 100 other testimonies during Maidan massacre itself about snipers located in Maidan buildings like Hotel Ukraine and so on, or about Maidan snipers. Again, during Maidan massacre. Uh, including videos, which uh, which um, just video testimonies and uh, video videos of such snipers. In addition to this, uh, there are like uh, 700 other witness testimonies in social media, in media published, including um, like Ukrainian, mostly Ukrainian media testimonies about snipers in medical locations and buildings. But again, still people and official investigations they still deny they never investigated such snipers. This is this is quite unprecedented to see. So many like uh, forms of evidence which uh, which support uh, kind of the same finding um, that there were snipers in Hotel Ukraine the, and other Maidan Hotel buildings. The massacre Maidan protesters this is totally ignored and and uh, and, uh, and denied. Uh, even so, all the evidence is publicly available. And uh, just another example, they used um, a New York architecture company uh, to create a model of Maidan massacre of killing of three Maidan protesters. And this model was pub published by New York Times and presented as evidence, definite evidence that this, uh, these protesters were killed 
not by metal snipers, but by um, uh, police in front of them using a kind of model of, uh, of the Maidan massacre and shooting of these protesters. But again, just for me, this is this is just astonishing to see how this massacre can be misrepresented even by the media like New York Times. And they do this openly because yeah. I, I wrote this to New York Times. I published this in my academic studies and, and um, published in a consortium news article showing that this was basically, uh, this model was a total misrepresentation of evidence, which was actually publicly available on the website of this company called C2 Company, uh, New York Architecture Company, because they uh, switched uh, location of wounds of Madame protesters, which were again very steep. And from side, from right to right, uh, left side, which is much as location of, of metal control buildings, they switched this to make them almost horizontal. And they made them also from a front direction, even so this was from the side. And this is very clear because uh, you have a forensic examinations which are translated into English language and their own website, which give exact location like centimeters and so on. And there is a difference of, in one case of 20, centimeters between exit and anti-wound, another case, 16 centimeters, and this, but they made this horizontal. So this is quite unbelievable. And, and this is consistent, which I also showed this in videos. There are testimonies of Madame protesters who witnessed uh, killing of these protesters and he saw exactly that they were killed from this direction, from the hotel, from uh, Bank Arcada, which was, again, controlled by Madame forces, not by the back police on the ground. There is also videos which show that uh, shield, mm -hmm. Bullet wounds, uh, so bullet holes in this shield during, during the shooting of these protesters, they appear from the direction from the side and from the top direction, not from the direction of the Batcourt police, which film, at the same time, they film not shooting into the direction of Maidan protesters. And this is, again, another evidence which was never reported. And, and in addition, there is another protester, just give you briefly, uh, who was killed, uh, again, uh, in this model, he was, uh, they show this, uh, that he was killed from the front in, in his helmet uh, with anti-bullet in front and uh, exiting in the back of his head. But there is a video of the of his helmet during the Maidan massacre, and there is only bullet hole in the back of his head. And, uh, and forensic medical examination said that he was, he, there was only wound in the back of his head when he faced police in front of him, and, uh, and his sister testified in Madame Masakatayo that he saw only wound in the back of his head. So there is no wound in his helmet in, in a medical examination and in any testimony that he, he was shot from the front, in front of his head, uh, but New York Times and this model, they claim this is uh, this is what happened. This is just unbelievable because all the evidence is kind of publicly available, but you, I, I was not able to publish this again, New York Times, and they still have this uh, article as evidence that this was massacred by, by better police and not by Maidan snipers. But I'm, but I'm curious, curious when, when they are pres when there is a when they are presented with the evidence you're referring to. I mean everything from <clears throat> sorry everything from the you know the, the the testimonies, the bullet wounds, the kind of bullets they're using, the admission by snipers, the 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 interviews by Saboda, like what 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 is the counter argument to to the evidence? Uh, well, well, what if we yeah if we looking at both sides, is there a debate? Is there a counter argument? Uh, uh, what 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 are we looking at here? Because uh, again, I'm uh, my ignorance is also partly because I I don't see any debate. It's it's just it, yeah it went in uh, yeah just a big uh, memory hole. Uh, I haven't seen it. 
I haven't seen what the counter argument to this is. Well, so I'm yeah, genuinely asking, well, well, what is the argument against this evidence which is put forth? No, they, are, they have no real arguments. So they, uh, instead of arguments, they attack me like, uh, so they resort to ad hominem attacks, saying this is like, I, I'm kind of politically motivated, I'm Yanukovych or some, kind of, I'm Russian or some, or some, all this stuff. Like, uh, this is just unbelievable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because I have no connection to Yanukovych, actually, or to Russia at all. So kind of, I'm a Ukrainian uh, scholar doing research in Canada. So again, uh, Politically, I supported European Union membership even during Maidan and before Maidan for Ukraine. So again, uh, kind of, I want Ukraine to be uh, kind of like a Western democracy with freedom and liberal democracy and so on. But kind of argument is basically is to attack me and so on. And they uh, use their such arguments. Recently, there was an article published by a journalist uh, Katie Young. Actually, I presented her with all my studies, with all evidence. So she basically omitted well, testimonies, she, she never reported testimonies of, of, of mm-hmm. Madan, wounded Madan protesters who were shot and testify of Madan sniper. So he claimed basically this is again conspiracy theory and this is like, uh, because this is Kremlin argument, all this kind of stuff. And she cited, as in support of her argument, she cited this blog post by a um, uh, historian of Ukraine, uh, David Malpas, which who published this blog post in 2014, basically, mm-hmm critical of my research because he again uh, this was original paper and he's not an expert he's he just published a blog on his own website and they use this blog basically as evidence that yeah. this is all my modern studies including new study and they do not mention uh, the, the evidence that even david Maltos after he published this, blog, this original blog in 2014 after i presented my first um, draft of this conference of this uh, paper and now, which is much more kind of, which is uh, after all this evidence became publicly available, he now changed his view and he said that he would not, uh, he would have not written his blog post as the way that he wrote it before. Even so, he he said in his original blog post that that I provided evidence that there were snipers and so on. But uh, kind of he, he now basically said that uh, kind of he now said that, uh, that based on my research he now be, he basically became uh, um, convicted that uh, convinced that this was basically his original claim that this massacre was done by government snipers is not longer supported by him so he said that basically snipers are not identified and he said that basically claims that there is need for a forensic uh, forensic uh, ballistic expert to determine this this was another argument kind of to say but but uh, and uh, and this uh, journalist Katie Young, she also uses and uh, some other uh, critics, a lot of critics, they uh, just do a search on the internet and they found the websites, which are like about several dozen websites, almost uh, kind of identical websites, which accuse me of, of being a falsifier of Maidan massacre and, and Ukrainian history mm-hmm. and so on. And, this, and they cite this website as basically as evidence that my, my academic studies, which are published in peer review journals, top conferences, and so on, uh, kind of <laughs> my studies and so on. And this is, they do not, do not mention that this is actually websites are created by activists from far right Svoboda Party, like who, is, uh, who has no knowledge, kind of no expertise at all. He linked to far right Svoboda Party. He's uh, from, from the time when this party was the last party in Ukraine. And he actually, he created such websites mm-hmm. specifically kind of to attack me and so on using all the kind of all the false arguments and he also did this for other uh, for other scholars like Ukrainian historian um, kind of of Unupa 
and and other kind of people, for instance, he also uh, he also does this on Wikipedia and so on. And he basically, uh, for instance, he uses uh, he basically he tries to justify a program Jewish program of Jews in in Nazi occupied Lviv by own far right own organization far right organization of UN in 1941 by by using uh, so called scientific scientific anti and saying that basically Jews basically deserve kind of uh, were massacred because they collaborated with the Soviet Union and so on. So this is a person who who basically kind of openly is anti-Semitic and, and justifies all this mass murder by UNUPA and so on. And, and now they cite this person who has no knowledge, just published on his own kind of uh, on his own website like um, blogs basically as evidence to dismiss my academic research. And this is quite unbelievable. Which I, can I just say, not just not just academic, because I've had experience of working courts. I mean, my own view about your work, Professor Kaczynowski, is that it is certainly rigorous, rigorous enough, and certainly methodically and carefully assembled enough to have been presented to a court. At the very least, a proper investigation, looking at this evidence, considering the forensic evidence that you prov provided, the witness evidence especially. Uh, it is imperatively called for. And given the importance of this crisis to what has happened in Europe and in international relations, understanding how this crisis began, because, of course, it matters hugely whether this was a peaceful process fired on by a government or whether, in fact, it was a violent protest leading to an, what was, in effect, the unconstitutional overthrow of a president. Your, your entire perspective of the whole Ukrainian crisis thereafter changes, whichever of these views you adopt. So when you have an assembly of the kind of evidence that you've put together, you would feel a need to establish the actual truth of what happened not to engage in ad hominem, ad hominem attacks. Professor Kachanowski, this is a question I wanted to ask because I completely agree. The media doesn't cover this story. It, it, it really doesn't want to look at your work, the media in the West. Governments in the West don't either. Do you think that this has led to us, us to where we are? Do you think, for example, it's encouraged perhaps a sense of impunity, a sense within Ukraine on every side that you can do anything because ultimately the truth no longer matters. Yes, I think this is one of the reasons for a current uh, dangerous situation, which would be devastating for Ukraine because uh, actually this uh, Maidan massacre escalated into conflicts, which I already mentioned, civil war in Donbass, Russian military intervention in Donbass in support of separatists, Russian annexation of Crimea, and now this uh, became uh, escalated ultimately into war between Russia and Ukraine when Russia illegally invaded Ukraine in uh, August of 2014. And actually Putin used one of the arguments to justify invasion. He, he said that there was a fascist coup in, uh, kind of in Ukraine, and he specifically mentioned the Maidan massacre and other kind of events. Uh, and this is, again, according to my research, this uh, far-right was not done this on their own. So this was not just this was not fascist coup, but this was actually because there was a moment also of oligarchic parties like Fatherland, and, and snipers from Georgia and, and possibly other countries. So this was also, there's also evidence of regime change, US-led regime change in, in the Maidan, which I also published kind of during this transition. 
even so there's no evidence of any direct uh, US involvement or any other government involvement, but I think uh, Western governments at least de facto supported this um, regime change or um, violent overthrow of the Yanukovych government specifically to use Ukraine against Russia. And this is basically gave immunity and, uh, and basically license uh, kind of um, to uh, kind of leaders of the Maidan opposition and also specifically very importantly to far right uh, who actually, who also, uh, who also were very active in this Maidan massacre and, and overthrow of Yanukovych, they, they gave them license basically to uh, on violence so because they feel impunity and uh, they are not persecuted in Ukraine. Uh, so uh, Zelensky government also did not persecute them. And actually, even after uh, they threatened Zelensky with uh, with Meda and so on, right sector leaders threatened him like an, an Azov, neo-Nazi Azov unit and so on. Civilian men of neo-Nazi Azov and so on. So this, they basically feel impunity because they uh, they are not punished for anything, including the Maidan massacre, which actually led to massacre not only of police but also massacre of their own Maidan protesters. So this is again kind of, um, and, and this led uh, afterwards there was Odessa massacre, which taken place of separatists, and now the violence also they. But it was also very active in the start of civil war in Donbass. And so I think that now this is kind of became very dangerous escalation of this, which goes back to kind of lack of, of justice in the case of Maidan massacre. And specifically, it was easy to prevent this war if uh, if actually, uh, if this, um, if people who were behind the Maidan massacre and organizations, including Farid, were, would have been exposed and persecuted for such crimes, either by uh, the Ukrainian courts or, for instance, by international criminal court, which which uh, had to examine this case, but they basically did not do anything in the case of investigating Maidan massacre. And this is why I think this is, would be very dangerous for Ukraine because now future of Ukraine is uh, is uh, kind of is very problematic in any case of outcome. Um, Ukraine would suffer very significant damage because of this war. I mean, it seems to me. Oh, sorry, you go first. No, no. I mean, it seems to me what has happened is that Ukraine has been hijacked. I mean, a, a, an armed group is a country that's, you know, had just established itself. It was going through very, very severe growing pains. There were many, many problems, but it was evolving. It was developing. There were elections and its, its history was hijacked and hijacked by a, a, in a most violent means. And the violence that began with this and the cynicism that began with this, because, you know, when you're shooting your own people in order to create a false flag, that is an exercise in extreme cynicism. That has escalated and got completely out of control with the disaster that we now see. Now, I, I'm going to say something else, Professor Kachanowski. When people deceive to this extent, how can you be certain that anything thereafter that you hear or read is true. I mean, the sense of cynicism, I would have thought that there must be in Ukraine, because people, some people in Ukraine must sense the truth. The sense of cynicism must be enormous. Yes, I think this is also, when I talk to Ukrainians, they privately, they admit this, that this is actually, they are very skeptical about kind of my official Maidan narratives, that they believe my evidence and so on. But publicly in Ukraine, it's not possible to discuss this because government basically controls the media. And uh, there was a few exceptions. I gave interviews to Ukrainian media actually before the, uh, including for my uh, native um, 
Western, uh, UK region of Volinia, to television networks, to several television networks, to, to some newspapers and so on. So there was such possibility to discuss this. Even so, most media coverage in UK and the West is dominated by all these narratives, fact, fact, basically fact-free narrative, which basically says that Yanukovych and his uh, government forces massacred Maidan protesters, even so evidence is uh, beyond any reasonable doubts, says opposite. But this is, again, evidence never reported, and only they say, they repeat this each time, and a lot of people just believe this, or not question this, or are afraid to discuss this, because it's very dangerous to talk about this, which I mentioned already, they, um, I'm not sure if uh, I did this uh, during a recorded interview, that uh, after I published my original study, presented my original study, my uh, house and all my property, uh, land and all my uh, property, like personal property, they were taken away illegally by decision of uh, uh, local judges who were told to issue such decisions after phone calls from the top, instructions from the top. So they, this was obvious political interference and retaliation for my research. So they take away all my property, all my house and, and, and land. So this is just one example of, of, of basic impunity. And nobody cares. Nobody, there is, again, no nothing. Media this, uh, would never report this. And, and again, and this is uh, this is done uh, kind of even uh, to, again, turn any justice. Even so, my investigation, um, my paper, original paper, which I presented in, in uh, American Political Science Association annual meeting in uh, San Francisco was uh, used by Ukrainian prosecutor general office. So they admitted that they used my paper with all the evidence there, kind of, but they did not do any investigation. They continued to deny that there were any snipers located in these buildings. Even so, official, even official Ukrainian investigation, first, uh, they initially stated in, on just one year, almost one year, no, not one year ago, nine years ago, on uh, in 2014, about one and a half months after Maidan massacre, they stated officially that snipers were located in the Hotel Ukraina, that, they, they, that the snipers were foreign snipers, including foreign snipers, and they shot Maidan protesters from Hotel Ukraina. But afterwards, they changed this in, in, in one day. They totally denied that this ever happened. So they, they started to blame uh, police on the ground. Belted police, not, they are not snipers by any definition. So, and afterwards, even afterwards, uh, official Ukrainian investigation, they, they said that uh, about almost half of wounded Maidan protesters were shot by um, by snipers or by people who were located, by shooters who were located in uh, areas which were not controlled by the government forces, which means like Maidan controlled areas and locations. And they do not charge anybody with, 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 with their shooting. So nobody is charged with, with wounding of almost uh, half of, of Maidan protesters. And because uh, they admitted publicly, because these protesters testify again that they were shot from Hotel Ukraine and other Maidan control buildings, or that even uh, Ukrainian uh, government ballistic experts uh, they, in their examination, they pointed the, to, uh, to, to snipers located in, in the Hotel Ukraine and other buildings. So this is another evidence. They claim that I am not expert in forensic, so kind of I'm not forensic expert, so they deny that kind of that kind of all this evidence, which um, which is which is again common sense evidence. You cannot just shoot somebody kind of uh, who would be in, kind of from the front if if there are bullets from the back or from uh, from um, again from the side and from very steep direction. So you cannot shoot this again bullet from the front. Uh, in a horizontal, from a horizontal uh, level, unless there would be again some ricochet concern, but this is not kind of systematic and so on. And this is this this uh, kind of again another type of evidence. They uh, was, um, oh sorry, uh, 
Yeah, sorry for interrupting because it reminds me of what you were talking about, Dave. Because we actually spoke for about half an hour before we started to record, and and uh, we we discussed the media coverage because this is what uh, mm. uh, well, what 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 you were talking about then. We should probably have hit record earlier, but yeah, that. Um, uh, that the media tends uh, well it, it doesn't only leave information out and twists things but uh, I, I think we use the word propaganda as well because this seems very much uh, well from my perspective one of the most heavy propaganda conflicts there is I mean one uh, one, 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 one isn't allowed to say it because then you're accused of being taking the other side which is again is a key feature of propaganda but I'm I'm <clears throat> because I, I know there's a, a there's very little information people actually have, and 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 the reason why is often you see that the the, the word empathy is used as a uh, to, to counteract it. So in other words, if you if you criticize, for example, the narrative, then it's suggested you don't perhaps have en- empathy for what's happening in uh, to, you know to the Ukrainians. And uh, of course, I mean, who, who wouldn't have empathy? What's happening in Ukraine is uh, completely gruesome it's it's horrible but but what but, but what i find interesting is how they always use this uh, narrative uh, yes we discussed to uh yeah to to skew the media coverage for example with as, as you've talked about with the sniper uh, events that if you point out uh, that all the evidence ca- you know the, the disproving the narrative which we are committed to because this has to be a democratic revolution we can't admit it was a coup uh, but also very basic things. I'm I'm surprised. Uh, I'm I'm located in Norway, and pe- people seem completely oblivious to the idea that the Ukrainians up till 2014 didn't want to join NATO. It's seen as being a Russian propaganda because we have the narrative that only thing Ukrainians were united in wanting to get away from Russia and to NATO. But you know, every single poll from <laughs> from uh, Ukraine's independence to 2014 always showed the same thing. Uh, approximately 20% of Ukrainians want to join NATO. NATO recognized this in their own reports. They find it as a huge problem. Uh, what are we going to do? Um, so, but 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 still, uh, you, this it can't be said. Also, with with the toppling, the, the coup. I mean, uh, this uh, idea that well, well, why why would you oppose it uh, if it's uh, you know it was a democratic revolution? But again. The Ukrainians didn't want the coup. They did again. The BBC, all this Western media, they acknowledged there wasn't a democratic support for it, just as if there wasn't a democratic support for NATO. And it's just um, uh, and and uh, again, everything is framed in the West. I feel as a as a you know, we we just want to support Ukraine. And again, I think this is a lot what propaganda does. It takes the best in human beings to do the worst because, of course, I, I want to help Ukraine too. Like, who doesn't? You see them suffering, you want to help. But but again, when we said help, we said let's help them with the anti-terrorist operation against Donbas. So again, uh, eight years of bombing uh, the population in Donbas, and it's um, all of it always falls under helping Ukraine. And I think one of the most grievous aspects of helping Ukraine was, you know, Zelensky's election. In like me and Alexander talked about this before in 2019, uh, the Ukrainians 73% voted for him. And if you watch his speeches, he was very clear. I mean, we we shouldn't divide the country. Don't uh, the, you know let let the people in the east speak Russian. Let let, let them have their culture. If if we if we keep uh, you know pushing this nationalist line, we're going to divide the country. But yet um, he was elected on this. Peace with Donbas, peace with Russia, implement Minsk. Yet, and once he was elected, you have all this pressure from the nationalists, also uh, very indirectly from the United States, and he he completely reverses after all. And uh, and uh, I've I've heard that this was a conspiracy theory. But if you go in the Ukrainian media, um, 
was the Kiev Post or I forgot the name of the newspaper. They 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 covered it to such a great extent. How you know Dmitry Arosh to all these different political leaders threatening the life of Zelensky if he tries to push through his election promises, and uh, and we we can't criticize it because if we criticize how they flipped the will of the Ukrainian people, then you take the side of Russia. Now you're a Putinist. It's just. Uh, like I'm just wondering, is is there another word for this than propaganda? Because it just it's it it seems um, yes, same where we are now. The the key argument is always we have to send more weapons. Like this, you know, videos of Ukrainians being dragged off the street to sent into the army. Uh, you know, we, this is what we have to do. We have to continue more more weapons, fight to the last Ukrainian. Otherwise, you're anti-Ukrainian. You're you're Putinist if you and you have no empathy for Ukrainian if you don't want to send weapons. Is it's just uh, it feels like empathy is never is always used to mobilize for war. It's never used to you know let's make a compromise with the Russians. You know let's stop NATO expansion. Let's offer this to take this burden off the back of the Ukrainians. You know let's have a bar- use this as bargaining card with the Russians to you know give back some territory or get some concession. But it's always you know <laughs> empathy always means to throw the Ukrainians at the front line. It's just. Uh, uh, I don't know. It, it it feels like propaganda to me, though. That's my. Um, but I, I'm not sure how you've seen it, Professor. Since since the since the toppling of Yanukovych, uh, uh, how, how have you seen the development from that to the Russian invasion? Because that was an eight year, you know, span. Uh, uh, did you research a lot of this area as well? Now this time period as well, in terms of uh, uh, you know the rise of the nationalist. Uh, and not necessarily that they had a lot of um, uh, support by the population, but uh, nonetheless, the power they accrued after uh, removing Yanukovych. Because uh, a lot of Western media covered this immediately after, recognizing the BBC as well. Many documentaries, articles saying the nationalists have really taken a lot of power now in, in the toppling of Yanukovych. Uh, but then it kind of fizzled out and disappeared. Uh, I'm not sure. Is this a focus of yours? Yes, exactly. I research also the Western media coverage of Ukraine and other post-communist countries. I also research far right in Ukraine and I research current um, what uh, I research war between Russia and Ukraine and also kind of this Western media coverage. So I can use only term which I can use is that uh, this is like Orwellian uh, tactic, basically or strategy um, to kind of um, by the media and by uh, politicians, basically. To kind of misrepresent uh, for their own self-interest, uh, kind of what's going on in Ukraine, and also kind of um, just to uh, kind of uh, to use it for their own uh, benefits. And because I don't see any empathy of uh, towards Ukrainians, I see actually a lot of uh, so this actually war and events which took place after Maidan kind of corroborate my studies of my. Uh, Academic studies in terms of representation of Ukrainians and policies, Western policies towards Ukraine has been very negative uh, and, uh, towards Ukraine and Ukrainians in particular, because I see only that the Ukrainians started from Maidan massacre and overstore of Yanukovych, they are used by the Western governments and treated by Western media basically only as tools uh, by Western, by the West to weaken Russia or to use against Russia. So this means the Western countries supported like Violent overthrow of, of uh, kind of relatively democratically elected government or semi-democratic government of Yanukovych by um, by this by means of um, of a false flag Maidan massacre and by uh, assassination attempts, including by far right, 
which is again would not be acceptable by any Western country or in their own country, but they supported this. They supported civil war in Donbass, like use of military force in Donbass. They supported also basically a kind of uh, other actions like um, against against uh, Russian speakers or Russian minorities and so on, which would be not would not be considered to be acceptable in any Western democracies. So this means the Western countries support. Uh, they not support Ukraine. They actually use Ukraine. To, to advance their own uh, geopolitical interests, uh, specifically Ukraine is uh, now a proxy state, and since became since Maidan a proxy, uh, kind of not a proxy state, a client state of the United States, and it's used uh, the only purpose that Ukraine and Ukrainians are used is to again weaken Russia, and um, and I don't think this is uh, there's any empathy because because actually this means that Ukrainians are sacrificed uh, for. For the sake of geopolitical interest, uh, and uh, and very few, um, I must I think there is no even discussion. For instance, that uh, Ukraine is used as proxy war after Russian invasion of Ukraine. There was a real possibility of peace deal to be signed uh, in uh, about one month ago, not one, I'm sorry, one year ago at the end of March of 2022, when uh, there was there was negotiation led by um, Israeli Prime Minister. Um, former Israeli Prime Minister who admitted recently in his interview that there was a very close possibility to agreement between uh, Russia and Ukraine to end this war, uh, but uh, Western countries, in particular British and, and uh, American administration, they blocked this uh, agreement, and this was supported also by statement from Ukrainian uh, newspaper, which is Tomaidan newspaper, which, uh, which reported in May of 2022 that there was also a very good chance for such agreement. And uh, there was even negotiation of um, of, uh, of, um, of a meeting between a summit between uh, Zelensky and um, and Putin to finalize such a deal, but the, this deal was blocked by by the West, specifically by British Prime Minister Johnson, who visited uh, Kiev and told Zelensky not to sign any peaceful deal with uh, with Putin, and that Putin needs to be punished, not uh, negotiated with. And the Western governments they told Zelensky they would not support uh, such peace deal if he would sign on his own. Because they would not provide any guarantees in case of such a peace deal, and this is why, kind of, um, kind of for me, this is kind mm -hmm. of a very tragic situation for Ukraine because now Ukrainians are used and killed and die for kind of for the reasons which are, again are not justifiable by any democracy reasons and by any empathy. They basically they are done for basically cynically. They used uh, kind of to to achieve geopolitical. Yeah. And uh, which are not compatible with democracy, not compatible with human rights, not compatible with any other kind of sovereignty of Ukraine or agency of Ukraine, which uh, they like to talk about. So, because as I mentioned, Ukraine, after Maidan massacre, there was evidence of regime change led by the US, and mm -hmm. Ukraine became a client state and basically mm -hmm. based on the influence of the US on the internal Ukrainian politics. And and, and now Ukraine is continue to be used as a proxy. This war with Russia, kind of in order to weaken Russia. Uh, even so, Ukraine has no real possibility of defeating Russia militarily. So this is again, basically, this is uh, kind of very damaging for Ukraine in uh, in the future. And uh, this is why, kind of, I'm quite skeptical. And uh, and I don't regard anything uh, kind of supporting of Ukraine because uh, I don't see any real support for Ukrainians. Actually, I see that uh, they are being used basically to achieve such goals. And also, it's necessary to say that Ukraine is not. United as was presented by all this Western media and politicians, because I also did research about regional political divisions, which I mentioned. I published dissertation. Uh, I did my dissertation on this topic and published later this as a book, academic book, in which um, there was clear division between Western 
and central Ukraine and eastern and southern Ukraine, in particular Donbass and Crimea, the, the uh, two regions which supported the separatists even before Maidan, uh, kind of and um, became centers of Russian separatists afterwards. But there was also other regions which were kind of more um, oriented towards Russia. They did not want to join Russia uh, to become uh, to be omnex by Russia, but they supported uh, more friendly relations with Russia. They were populated by Russian speakers. In contrast to Western Ukraine, which I'm originally from, and from uh, Central Ukraine, which is actually more Ukrainian speaking, and uh, supported more NATO membership and European Union membership. And, and now, basically, people who were kind of still in Donbass and Crimea, they, they support joining Russia. So they actually, they are, in this regard, they actually kind of, uh, but their views, again, not represented. They are not considered to be Ukrainians. And, uh, and even the fact of civil war in Ukraine, which took place in 2014, is still ongoing. They are still uh, fighting, for instance, between separatists and, um, and uh, separatist mm -hmm. forces, Ukrainian forces. Again, even if so now Russia next these regions, so basically, uh, this is uh, totally denied by the media. It's not possible even to say that this is civil war. Even so, I kind of, I uh, in my studies, all the evidence is overwhelming, and in, including majority of academic scholars who research this war, they classify this as a civil war with the Russian military interventions. But uh, the fact is again denied or ignored by the media because this is inconvenient. So basically, this means that Ukrainians were killing Ukrainians, and this started with Maidan. This status, which was major crime, which taking place, and, uh, yeah. and again, uh, but uh, but now nobody cares about this. There is no justice, and uh, and again, and this is actually supported by Western uh, governments, and I think even uh, media they don't care about this because they know evidence. But uh, for them, this is not important. They basically follow their own governments. That's why they use this to justify such policies towards Ukraine. That's that's why I'm quite uh, I I'm become I think uh, quite a skeptical and also kind of. Um, kind of uh, even disappointed by the degree to which uh, politicians, Western politicians, can use Ukrainians basically and, uh, and do not care that so many Ukrainians are getting killed to achieve their own goals, uh, geopolitical goals. And this is, I think, the main manifestation of very negative view of Ukraine and Ukrainians during this war because they are basically sacrificed just to contain Russia or to show that uh, China, that basically that uh, invasion would not be tolerated and so on. So, but this is even so. There is no real possibility of defeating Russia militarily. So this is that's why all the talk about supporting Ukraine is actually not supporting Ukraine, but using Ukraine. So this is and this is quite important because mm. politicians mm. and media they are and this is and this applies to other conflicts taking place as well. I, I completely agree. I would add that I think that the Western powers run a risk that at some point when the whole feeling about this comes through in Ukraine, there will be an awful lot of people in Ukraine who become very, very critical of the rest, look at their country, look at what was done to them and start asking the question, you know, really, who was to blame? And perhaps it was the West. And some of this anger that's at the moment focused on Russia might be transferred westwards. I've seen that happen in other places. I've seen that happen in... Uh, Chechnya, for example, I've seen, I've actually encountered people from Chechnya and they, who fought the Russians and f feel today that they were used. And they were very anti-Russian before, and now their attitudes have changed very radically. So I can, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I, it could happen. One of the, 
One of the things, could you just ask one, one question, Professor Kachinowski? One thing I simply do not understand about this whole affair is that Maidan happened a year before an election was supposed to take place in Ukraine. Most people thought Yanukovych was going to lose. When he signed off on that agreement, you know, on the 21st of February, sometime weeks after the protests, it looked even more likely he was going to lose. So why go through all the trouble of overthrowing him in this violent way? Was it because there were some concerns that, you know, if you, he might win? Or was it perhaps because you didn't want to tolerate anybody who might be in any way sympathetic to some kind of rapprochement with Russia? And that was, um, you know, something that Yanukovych was associated with. And you wanted basically to eliminate anybody who had sort of alternative views. That's a bit of a loaded question, Professor Kachanovsky. But I, perhaps you could just briefly point to that and then I, I, I will hold my peace. Okay, I think there were two reasons for this. One reason that um, uh, Maidan opposition, I think Western governments who knew what actually happened with the Maidan, and the Maidan opposition uh, leaders who actually were involved in this um, post-Black Maidan massacre, they were afraid that this um, kind of, uh, that if Yanukovych will stay in power, this uh, this evidence of post-Black Maidan massacre and evidence of Maidan snipers become public and would actually use to kind of to diminish influence of, of, of Maidan opposition and that they might actually lose elections. So there was such a possibility a real possibility if he would stay in power and have possibility to in, uh, investigate because there were like a lot of evidence so this was a clear cut and so it's kind of it was uh, not something again which required a lot of investigation it was like uh, there are videos of sniper shooting and so on and even um, actually one of uh, leaders of a group of Maidan snipers who actually publicly admitted in Ukrainian media that uh, he led his group of uh, armed Maidan self-defense group, which included snipers who shot Maidan protesters and police. He actually, and he admitted basically, and, and uh, members of his group in BBC interview and Italian media interview interviews admitted shooting um, police um, during, the, um, during the Maidan massacre, and they were later filming the Hotel Ukraina in a variety of videos, including shooting into Maidan protesters. So this um, uh, leader of a right um, link uh, group of Maidan self-defense and group of Maidan snipers, he said in Ukrainian media he, that he actually um, was involved in pressuring, basically, or forcing members of Ukrainian parliament to vote for impeachment of Yanukovych. So, and specifically from uh, from, his, from party of regions and communist party. So they were forced by, by this kind of a leader, of, one of the leaders from Maidan Sniper, specifically to remove Yanukovych, and this is just one evidence because he was presented basically as the one who made the speech asking Yanukovych to, or threatening Yanukovych with uh, violence, and he was presented as hero by even uh, Western media, by Ukrainian media, and in fact, there is evidence that uh, he and his group were actually involved in this massacre of the police and protesters, and this is why uh, you have obviously self-interest not to allow any investigation and to restore Yanukovych to prevent such investigation. So there was self-interest in not to allow investigation of Maidan massacre because it would immediately reveal that this was not Yanukovych forces. It would, uh, would have been uh, clear that this was actually Maidan opposition and uh, including far right. And this is why they do not want to allow this. Another reason I think was that um, even if Yanukovych would have lost elections, 
in uh, after Maidan massacre. In such case, there was also real possibility that he, he or another Russian force or party would be able to win elections in next in the future. Uh, what happened uh, after the Orange Revolution? Because after the Orange Revolution, when Yanukovych tried to falsify uh, election, uh, or Kushma tried to falsify election results in favor of Yanukovych, so this led to mass protests and kind of an, an election results were nullified. And Western uh, Yushchenko um, was elected as a president of Ukraine, but Yanukovych managed to uh, come, make comeback. He won uh, next presidential elections. And he came to power during uh, elections, which were regarded as democratic elections. And this, I, I think, uh, was kind of danger for, again, for Maidan opposition and to Western countries, because this meant that uh, there was a real possibility that Yanukovych and, or any other Russian party, maybe, or relatively Russian party, would, would win elections again, and would, uh, they would lose uh, elections, uh, the Maidan opposition would lose elections. And this is why this would mean that Ukraine would not be used uh, kind of as a tool against Russia, it would again would become uh, would basically would uh, interlace between between pro-Western and pro-Russian in elections because popular support was uh, was almost equally divided, and uh, and uh, and any kind of any situation could have swing support either from pro-Western or pro-Russian uh, kind of political forces and presidential candidates in Ukraine. This is I think this was another reason why they supported such um, violent overthrow of the Ukrainian government by means of the false class false flag Maidan massacre by this uh, constitutional impeachment and by assassination attempts, which would again not this would not be acceptable by any any Western countries. This is like what is January 6th uh, event. So this is considered to be totally unacceptable. Far right is in the West is totally regarded again as totally kind of beyond any even possibility to have any kind of uh, any uh, even uh, kind of uh, acceptance, but in Ukraine, far right was able to join uh, security forces, uh, Ukrainian government. They were able to join um, again the military. They have their own uh, unit, like Azov Regiment now, Azov Brigade, even opening neo-Nazis, and this is like toler tolerated by the West. They have no problems. They were involved also in um, Odessa massacre and Maidan massacre, but again, there, there are no kind of. No, no pressure from the West uh, to uh, to do anything against far right, and I think because far right is very useful in this regard, again because they are ideologically ideologically motivated, they rely on violence. This is why they are useful to again for geopolitical purposes, like similarly to what was with Al Qaeda in, in Syria. But I think uh, again uh, the claim again, but claims by Putin that this Ukraine is Nazi state or Nazi state again also basically false and, uh, because Ukraine uh, Zelensky and his government are not Nazi or not Nazi. But again, there is real issue this, which is used by both by the West and by Russia specifically for their geopolitical reasons. And I think this is very kind of difficult and very problematic in terms of future of Ukraine because this is very dangerous and very damaging uh, as we can see right now. I think uh, yeah, I think it was an interesting comment you made that uh, they had to make sure that uh, uh, Yanukovych or anyone like-minded wouldn't be able to come back because I think that was the experience of the of the Orange Revolution in two thousand four. Because again, this was also then yeah the West weighing in heavily in as well as the Russians over that into Ukraine's election in order to put in place a, a pro-Western anti-Russian president, which was uh, you. Uh, Yushchenko. So again, a lot of popular support from Ukrainians, but I, I would I would say it was hijacked to a large extent by by the NATO EU agenda as well. In terms of uh, the main objective being that it ends up in our side 
in, in our camp, if you will. So, but but again, the Yushchenko experience was interesting because yeah, we got we I mean NATO we got Yushchenko in place. His first you know first uh, uh, ideas were hey, we have to get into NATO, we have to get away from Russia. So all of the same ideas as before. But uh, but as we know. After this wasn't this didn't go down very well with the Ukrainians. I mean, they, yes, they were able to get the promise of future NATO membership, but but the Ukrainians didn't want to be part of this. Uh, there was again seventeen to twenty percent who actually supported it. So, uh, so I remember at the end of his presidency, there was this article in uh, Time magazine or Newsweek. It had you know, the title was "Yushchenko's star has fallen," and it said that he's now the most unpopular president in the world. With 2.7. That's 2.7 percent approval rating, which makes you know Kim Jong Un and George Bush look like rock stars by comparison. So it was horrible. Like they immensely popular, so they didn't like the policies. So I think that this was you know. And then what happened? Yanukovych took the election in 2010, and he's back. So I think that a coup can have a more permanent because it has this revolutionary. Uh, dynamic to it, which you uh, uproot a lot of the existing structures. So, for example, uh, after the coup, the f- on the same day, the first uh, what uh, legal um, what proposal they advanced was, you know, removing the Russian language from, you know, as, a f- as an official language. I mean, this was the first thing. So, the idea, you know, the the derussification process, I guess, to make it permanently, to make the revolution permanently, which you might not be able to get an election. And you have the cultural repression as well of uh, of the uh, yeah at least the Ukrainians in the east. Uh, we saw a lot of the opposition parties and especially the the party region and the communist party being uh, purged to some extent. Uh, the opposition leader Medvedchuk, I mean, th- thrown in jail because he was you know arrested. No, no, he was put in. He was arrested, but not in jail. He was put in um, what is it called? Uh, uh, house arrest, uh, and again, this was before Russia invaded because you know he he, he became a more powerful opponent to Zelensky. The, you know, he was more 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 popular, and also the media. One one can't shouldn't forget that uh, you know Zelensky's are shutting down all opposition media. You wouldn't be able to do this in a regular election, but uh, but this is uh, that's why I think a, a coup can be more effective in terms of uh, having more permanent changes, and uh, of course I think the economy is quite important because. Uh, as long as Ukraine's economic interest lies with Russia, you know they will find their way back together. But uh, I thought it was interesting after the coup what uh, well, what happened to economic governance. Uh, first of all, you had the Americans, so you know Hunter Biden becoming, you know, taking on the board of uh, Burisma, uh, you know, so essentially merging in with the Ukrainian energy industry. Also, uh, the most uh, I thought a grotesque example uh, was uh, Natalie Yaresko. Uh, you know, she was a U.S. citizen. She worked for the U.S. State Department. She was the former uh, economic uh, section chief of the U.S. Embassy in Ukraine. In other words, in the American Embassy for Ukraine, an American state official. And uh, after the afterwards, you know, she received. Uh, she, she she took the job as the finance minister. Uh, was it finance minister? Yeah, of of, yeah. of 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 Ukraine. And she got the citizenship on the same day, a Ukrainian citizenship, so she could take over. So you. You work in the American embassy to Ukraine, and then you take over as the finance minister of Ukraine. I mean, for me, it feels like a coup. <laughs> how, how? I mean, shifting the economic interests away from from Russia again, mm. economic disaster for Ukraine, but uh, a permanent uh, split. So, I think this is a good, and, and not to support the coup, but this is a, a, an advantage of a coup, if you will, if if, if you want to have more permanent changes and. 
obviously the Russian reaction didn't help as well by taking back Crimea and supporting Donbass. Uh, I guess this also turned a lot of Ukrainians, of course, against Russia. So it's, uh, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure if you agree, Alexander. This is more. No, about... I, I can, I, I completely agree. I mean, bear in mind, I've experienced the coup myself. It happened in Greece in my childhood, and that is the purpose of. A coup. A purpose of a coup, in part, obviously, is you know you overthrow a government that you might not be able to overthrow, but it's also partly intended to present to to change the political landscape and the cultural landscape to carry out a root and branch eradication. It, it certainly that was what was attempted unsuccessfully in Greece, but it's been pursued much more consistently in Ukraine. A root and branch eradication of forces within the society that you might see not just as potential dangers now, but as potential dangers later. And unfortunately, tragically, in the case of Ukraine, all of this happened within the context of a greater geopolitical struggle over which Ukrainians ultimately have no control and going back to the comments that Professor Kachanovsky was making, of which Ukrainians are the victims. I mean, you, you, both, both of you gentlemen were talking about empathy for Ukraine. I mean, people who really care about Ukraine should care about what happened at Maidan. They should care about what happened after Maidan, what was done to Maidan, the way in which the whole situation of Ukraine has been pushed into this geopolitical conflict, which is destroying so many Ukrainians and destroying so much Ukrainian life. But that, in my opinion, that's exactly why I think there was the coup. You don't just want an election because Yanukovych might lose the election. But then, as Professor Kachanovsky said, he might win again. Or if not him, maybe someone like Medvedchuk or maybe someone else, somebody who has different views. And you don't want that because you want a permanent change, because you need both to transform Ukraine internally. And you want, if you're involved in a geopolitical conflict, to state to secure Ukraine, to anchor Ukraine decisively within your system. I think also, <clears throat> sorry, that, that part of the reason why the media has been so horrible is, I think, uh, uh, as uh, yeah, Professor uh, Kachanovsky pointed out, it, it, the evidence does matter. You can put all the evidence in front, but uh, the only thing I think matters is uh, what does it signal? Are you giving uh, legitimacy to NATO or to Russia? Because if you're saying something that undermines the narrative of NATO, then you're taking Russia's side, and now you're Putinist, and you don't care about Ukraine. Like this is always the narrative. Because I remember after uh, yeah, Russia next uh, Crimea, you know, the, the argument was, oh, I was at the barrel of a gun. It's like, well, I, I would, I can agree. There's a huge problem with the legality of it. You can't, you know, you need Kiev's uh, consent before you. Well, it's a complicated system with the parliament in Crimea, but mm. nonetheless, uh, it, it wasn't correct. I mean, all all Western analysis or polls show the same thing, mm. that there was a support for it. It doesn't mean that it's right. It doesn't mean that I would have to support it. But it, it, again, yeah. just if you state the fact, it, it's, it's interpreted as, as an indication of support for the wrong side, if you will. And we have to pick the right trenches. And I remember when uh, it was, I think it was Putin who compared Crimea with uh, Kosovo and uh, and, uh, you know, Obama went out and gave this speech that, no, no, you can't compare it because in, in Kosovo you had this, you know, there was also a referendum with all this uh, democratic uh, 
um, oversight from the OSE and you know like this was you know international community was there and then but but there was never any referendum in in, in Kosovo nothing yeah, like I asked people when was the date for this referendum it never happened but not a single Western journalist picked up on this and said well actually there was never a referendum but instead we just run with it because uh, if you would point out Obama there was no referendum write an article about this it will be interpreted as uh a statement of support for Russia. Now you're supporting their annexation of Crimea and effectively you're a Russian stooge. So it's just, you're not allowed to say, uh, like Professor Kachanovsky, you can have all the facts, for example, of, of what happened on Maidan in place, but all they hear is, oh, well, now you're just, uh, you know, yeah. this is what the Kremlin wants you to think. And uh, yeah, it's... I can, I, I entirely agree, but can I just make make an observation? It's it, it's It wasn't always this way. I mean, I, I can remember, I can go back in time, I can remember reading newspapers at the time of the war in Vietnam. I mean, not the early part, but the later part, 1970s, I was already reading newspapers. And there was much, much more criticism and analysis and debate about the facts and a much more nuanced understanding of the war in Vietnam than there is about this one. I mean, you came repeatedly against, in every newspaper, you would find people who'd come back and say, look, it's not as straightforward. There are, the other side does have its concerns. It does have its points. You know, let's try and move beyond those. Let's look at these facts. And somehow, somewhere, it's all just gone away. So we're now presented with what is a, basically a fairy tale of, you know, you know, heroic Ukraine, democratic Ukraine, Ukraine that's, you know, 100 percent united and always has been wanting to join the West and being attacked by this giant Russian bear. And of course, what happened in Maidan, in my experience today, most people in the West know absolutely nothing about Maidan at all. They don't even know that there were protests then. I mean, they would have known at the time, but that was, well, what, eight years ago? The memory of that's faded. We don't talk about it. We certainly don't talk about the events that Pre Professor Kachanowski talked about. Ukraine has always been this pure democratic state. And um, that's why we must support it. And if you don't do that, then, of course, as you correctly said, you're a pro-Putin stooge. And that wasn't how it was. And it shows, this is what I feel, how this geopolitical struggle, which has made Ukraine its victim, is changing our societies, our own Western societies, because I live in Britain, and it's changing our societies in a way that is very much to their detriment too. Yes, I think I can agree. And for me, this is, I think, very uh, negative development because I see that uh, Western countries becoming, in this case, as more like Ukraine, because there were similar, exactly similar kind of arguments when, uh, for instance, I researched uh, uh, the involvement of the UN and UPA in mass murder of Jews, uh, Poles, and Ukrainians during World War II and after World War II, which was documented. This is based on evidence, documents, testimonies, so again, overwhelming evidence, even admissions by uh, UN and UPA leaders and, and German documents about their collaboration with Nazi Germany and so on. All the evidence was available, but if you write something like um, when I wrote something or try to publish this in Ukrainian media, 
kind of Ukrainian powder. Newspapers invited me, but then they could not publish my research because they this was this run against their kind of narrative, which presented basically this own Nepal organizations as fighters for Ukrainian independence. Uh, again, and deny any collaboration with Nazi Germany or justify them uh, for uh, some other reasons and so on. And uh, so if you try to present this, uh, this was immediately, uh, you have a response, this was like Soviet uh, Soviet propaganda, or uh, like, or kind of, because this is equivalent to Soviet, because Soviet Union also kind of, um, kind of presented them as Nazi kind of collaborators and so on. So basically, evidence did not matter at all. The only what is important is what kind of political uh, considerations, and I think this is a very kind of a very negative development because I mentioned uh, in my uh, in my article in my papers, which uh, I think article which I mentioned would be published soon in a peer review journal, and there is a kind of in, at the beginning of the article there is a quote from uh, John Adams, who was um, uh, one of the leaders of uh, American Revolution and fight for independence of U.S. and also became United States president. And he, before he became president of the United States, he was a lawyer who uh, who tested, who led a defense of the British soldiers uh, during the Boston massacre trial in Boston. So this was famous massacre which took place when uh, when pro-independence from pro-American independence um, residents of Boston were uh, had confrontation with British soldiers and British soldiers killed uh, local uh, residents, Boston residents who supported basically uh, who opposed against the British government, British monarchy, and uh, supported the independence basically of the United States. And this again immediately in the U.S. media there was a kind of a blame for British soldiers that they massacred without any provocation, without any reason, and so on. And this. Uh, uh, John Adams, actually one of the leaders of the uh, independence uh, movement in the US, and specifically stated uh, that uh, during, the Mara, during the Boston massacre trial, he be, he became uh, a lawyer for the for the British forces, for British soldiers soldiers who were accused of uh, this mass massacre in Boston. And he said in his famous quote, which I quote also in my paper, that uh, facts are facts need to be accepted basically no matter what our passions not what kind of our preferences we need to rely on facts no matter what they say and this is kind of no matter what kind of implications they mean and he specifically defended British soldiers saying that they were provoked basically by by this by local residents of Boston who supported independence by basically trying to kind of to provoke them into shooting and this this was not planned and so on and British soldiers were actually acquitted by the trial as a result of the trial, and this is this happened uh, 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 like uh, uh, I think uh, at the end of nineteen uh, uh, at the uh, uh, at the end of eighteenth century. So this is was then kind of argument which was considered to be normal that you can just rely on evidence, not on politics. Even so, this was very damaging to this myth, myth that the Boston massacre was conducted by um, basically by British forces who killed protesters. They did not uh, deny this. this uh, they killed uh, these uh, protesters who supported U.S. independence, but uh, they, they were acquitted basically because uh, of evidence said that this was not just an you know, massacre. There was other kind of reasons, and this is just one example. And now. The, basically, you try to do similar arguments, and now they use all these kind of very primitive arguments that this is there is only one basically kind of two ways to say something, which is uh, if you uh, an evidence basically needs to be based only on political narrative, and evidence does not matter. And for me, this is I think very dangerous development and very negative development because 
kind of what would this mean if, uh, for instance, doctors would start start giving their, their diagnosis and treatment based on politics, not based on evidence, not based on medical tests, but based on political considerations, based on country of origin, based on political party affiliation. This would be totally kind of unprofessional, and the same applies to academics. So, so again. I am an academic, as actually Ukrainian also. Kind of, uh, for me, this is very important to rely on facts and not on any kind of politics. And uh, and for me, it does not matter what they say because I know that they are kind of my arguments are very solid. They are based on evidence, which nobody can actually uh, over kind of disprove. Because again, it I say very it's very easy to disprove my arguments. Just do a research, present evidence. And present such testimonies, present similar evidence, and so on. But nobody can do this. They only can rely on this kind of, um, of false political arguments, trying to kind of uh, implicate, trying to imply that this is like something political motivated or linked, and so on. Even so, there is no evidence at all. But this is kind of their strategy, or they just making uh, claims again, kind of trying to deny this or ignore this. This is another way, basically, trying to censor this. As happened with my article, which was accepted by for peer review journal. Um, with minor revisions and then rejected by another editor because they did not like political implications. And even academia now became the place when, again, it's become very difficult to, to do research and basically to do what a scholar is supposed to do because uh, this is like task of scholars not to just repeat politician narratives or media narratives, but to rely on evidence and no matter what it says. And this is, I think, very important. And I can say that just one example, I, I testified as an expert witness in the United States uh, uh, court cases, in immigration cases, and uh, about specifically about Maidan, my research about Maidan massacre, and uh, my evidence was used uh, during these trials by judges, and and, and some of and, and, uh, most of uh, testimonies were accepted as evidence uh, without. Again, as um, as a witness and uh, and uh, judges in in uh, including in one case which was directly related to my massacre, they uh, judges issued decisions based on my uh, evidence. They they used my evidence, academic studies, yeah. to, and they accepted this and they used and uh, and one in one case, uh, a lawyer said that the judge uh, cited all my um, my evidence all the way in in, in her decision to basically and and even in another case which was considered by a lawyer. Who told me that this case was regarded as basically totally unlikely to be to be won? It was actually won after I presented again as an expert witness and testified based on my research. And this is again under oath. So this is again and without any kind of without any kind of um, uh, any other motivations. And I'm again as I mentioned. Uh, again, and this is, I think, very important for UK because the uh, truth is very important. And I think uh, the truth became casualty of the war between Russia and UK, after Russian invasion, to even to much greater extent than before. But I think in any case, in the any future, this will be still a very important issue. So even so, the tactic of suppression and censorship of making all this false claims again and all this uh, ad hominem attacks and so on this can have some temporary effect in the long run i think this is very important to know and understand what happened and i think yeah. the truth would prevail on people would have to actually admit what happened and i think the people who are responsible would uh, would still face justice in any kind of in even if it might be delayed or even if it might be just symbolic justice it would be still uh, i think clear what happened and why yeah. it happened what kind of terrible consequences for you can this maidan massacre had and um, and again but this obviously this does not justify actions by russia because again uh, russia 
again, uh, or make uh, Russian actions legal in case of annexation of Crimea, which was support, supported by local residents, majority of them, but again, yeah. which not be yeah. according to, um, to, uh, to the law and also does not justify Russian invasion. But I can say also that uh, this was very clear because that uh, the, that Ukraine was like a, basically a power cake, which was very, there was a very strong possibility of conflict and breakup of Ukraine because before Maidan. And I wrote in my dissertation, published in my book, about which was called Clef Countries, uh, which which examined regional divisions and conflicts in Ukraine and Moldova, in particular separatism in uh, in Donbass, in uh, Crimea, and in Transnistria uh, region, in the Gurdia region of Moldova. So, so I compared why there was conflict in Moldova, uh, secession and breakup of Moldova after uh, separatist, Russian separatist region of Transnistria succeeded, and why there was no such conflict and secession of Crimea. And Donbass, even so, these regions were also supporting separatists and wanted to join Russia after the backup of the Soviet Union. And my finding was that this happened because, uh, to a large extent, because of politicians. So, so politicians in Ukraine at the time and Western governments and Russian governments, they did not support such uh, such conflict. Basically, they did not support such secession in Ukraine. And this yeah. enabled Ukraine to remain peaceful until. This changed during Maidan. So Maidan was very crucial in this regard because uh, Maidan politicians, they started to rely on violence, in particular Maidan massacre and assassination attempts, and this was supported by Western governments. And afterwards, Russia started to, to support separatists in Donbass, and uh, kind of, um, and this led to kind of changes of policy, and now basically Ukraine is de facto broken up, um, and there is, uh, again, for Ukraine, in any case, I don't see any possibility that Ukraine would be able to take back control over Donbass or Crimea. So they're, they're basically lost now for the future and after Russian annexation. So I think this is uh, the question is only what kind of damage of Ukraine and how Ukraine would be able to survive and end this war because uh, conflict is likely to continue with very negative consequences and uh, with, uh, with, uh, with little possibility of basically close to zero possibility of Ukraine being able to defeat Russia and, and um, Kind of militarily, because Russia has military advantage, even with support of, kind of from the West, uh, which is given to Ukrainian uh, both military, financial, and so on. And I think in this regard, I think this is a big tragedy because uh, truth about Maidan massacre is directly relevant to conflict as well, because because it shows that uh, how easy it basically it's to fool people or to kind of mislead them by omitting some evidence, by kind of presenting using some evidence like videos. Which are shown as basically the videos which were filmed and shown on on, on Western television on many other Ukrainian television showing the Belgrade police shooting kind of and the protesters being killed. But this was very I noticed this even at the start of Maidan massacre that these videos were edited. Basically, you have in one videos you have basically police shooting and in other videos you have protesters killed. So these two events were presented basically as as. Uh, blaming police shooting into protesters and protesters killed. But when I examine all the videos of Maidan massacre, synchronize them according to time frame and according to specific um, uh, sound mm -hmm. and announcement for Maidan stage, they are synchronized in my studies. It, it, it becomes immediately clear that times of police shooting did not coincide with times of protesters being killed. 
So when police were shooting, they were shooting into ground. You can see like a, a bullet hit in ground, or they were shooting in the walls, uh, Hotel Ukraina, location of snipers, or they were shooting in front of protesters, kind of stop the advance or into uh, teeth or kind of or poles, electric poles and so on. There is no evidence that they were shooting actually in protesters. And, and, and because the time and direction of shooting uh, by backward police do not coincide with uh, specific times and, and uh, directions where protesters were killed. And this is like, uh, all this evidence is supported by other kind of synchronized videos, which are also included by this C2 company. So, and so now clear, even videos which are presented as main argument, as main evidence that the protesters were killed by police actually show opposite. But again, this is never reported. This is, I think, kind of a big issue. And, be, and just big example, how easy it's basically to mislead people just using such a, such a kind of primitive, basically kind of a censorship and a distortion and fake news in the case of Maidan massacre. But it has very profound consequences for understanding other politics, including current war between Russia and Ukraine. I thought it was interesting you mentioned uh, Moldova before because <clears throat> uh, it has a lot of similarities to what happened in Ukraine. Uh, you know, because you have the Transnistria or Pridnostrovia uh, region, which which broke loose, and and Russia attempted to reach an agreement there in 2006. I mean, and the the key agreement was, you know, uh, Transnistria had to give up a lot of its uh, its desires to have a full, you know, comparative with uh, or. Uh, equality with the rest of Moldova because they're much smaller. Uh, but anyways, uh, long story short, they ended up with a compromise in which, uh, uh, in which uh, yeah, uh, Transnistria they would they would unify uh, and and they would uh, yeah then they, they wouldn't have so much influence uh, Transnistria in unified Moldova. However, they would have autonomy to the extent that they could block uh, NATO membership, and this was the main thing the Russia wanted because they want an end to NATO expanding on its borders. So so they said. Okay, this is what we get. We we get to block at least NATO. I'm not sure if it would include the EU as well. And uh, and then they agreed. The Moldovan side and Transnistria, you know, the Moldovan president boarding a flight, ready to go sign the paper. And would you know, they get a call from from, from uh, the EU and the Americans saying, "Listen, do do not sign this. It's unacceptable. Like we have a you know future path. It, it's NATO. This NATO is coming. So do do not sign this agreement." And and it was thrown out, and uh, because you know they couldn't afford to you know uh, anger both the EU and the Americans, but this was essentially the yeah the West stepping in, actually preventing a peace uh, which was agreed upon. And this is uh, again, I feel like this. Uh, sometimes I feel a little bit of a deja vu when I see in 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 Ukraine, and mm -hmm. uh, also yeah, right to what you said about academ academia and truth, because. That's what academia is supposed to be. It's supposed to be pursuit of truth, but uh, but we're being but it's very difficult because being asked to ignore facts in in the name of supporting Ukraine. But that's why I also thought one of your articles were quite interesting because yeah, it was said uh, if a yeah, falsehood about the Ukrainian conflict is standing in the way of peaceful resolution. You wrote I think about yeah, two years ago and. Uh, but, but again, it goes contrary to the narrative because you know you have to support the narrative if you, support, if you help want to help Ukraine. But uh, again, drawing on the Moldovan analogy again or comparison, it just yeah. uh, like it just looks like we did, we, did, we did the same, but we don't we don't again we yet we don't report on it. Uh, you touched on it a bit before with with Minsk, for example. 
you had both the German chancellor and the uh, French president uh, who signed the Minsk agreement coming out saying, oh, we didn't intend to implement it. It was meant to be a peace agreement. We just wanted to buy time to arm Ukraine. This is a, quite an extraordinary statement because every Western leader, major leader has said there's no peaceful alternative to Minsk. And yet we're not really planning Minsk. Instead, we're arming. If for me, it's... Uh, it, like how how else would you sabotage a peace? And you know we went to the UN and signed this Minsk agreement. It was international law, so you know our side or NATO, if you will, also break, breaking international law. But if you read the papers uh, across uh, Europe now, they said you know the Russians weren't following Minsk, the Ukrainians were. I mean, but Russia's not mentioned in the Minsk agreement. It wasn't an agreement with Russia. It was. Uh, you know, Kiev and Donbass, it's not mentioned. And yet we're arguing that the Russians didn't follow it. It's just, and again, it's it's not a statement of support for Russia. It's just recognizing the fact, look in Minsk II agreement, Russia does not appear because it was an agreement between Kiev and Donbass. It doesn't mean that Russia's not a uh, participant in the conflict. But again, the, the, it's you're not allowed to state the basic facts. And uh, yeah, also, as yeah, Professor uh, Kachanovsky pointed out before, uh, this uh, the, the sabotage of the peace agreements after Russia invaded. For me, wh- why is this not <laughs> front page in the media? It's just mm-hmm. uh, quite extraordinary. I mean, the Israeli mm-hmm. prime minister who tried to negotiate on records, sitting on a podcast, saying, yes, the West wanted to block it. And then the, 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 the interviewer asks him, what, the West blocked it? Yes, they blocked it. Uh, okay, well... I, I was accused of spreading falsehood when I cited this in an article. And you know, the Turkish foreign minister as well, coming out very clearly, the West wasn't ready for peace. They wanted to fight Russia, fight Russia with Ukrainians. And if you criticize this or point it out, you're not supporting Ukraine. It's just, uh, and uh, again, it's said to be a conspiracy, but Boris Johnson, he wrote op-eds. He went giving speeches saying, we don't want a bad peace in Ukraine. And then the Ukrainian media, the American media, they are confirming, yeah, yeah, yeah. Boris Johnson, he, he told them, do not sign this agreement. We're not going to support it. Instead, we'll give you weapons if you will fight. Uh, so uh, <laughs> I think American, no, sorry, the German general, uh, Harold Kuyat, he was as well. He said the same thing. He was on NATO's some... Supreme Council or whatever it was, uh, saying the same thing. Yeah, you know, the, the British and Americans sabotaged this because, you know, they want to fight uh, Russia with Ukrainians. Again, my 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 point isn't to whitewash Russia's, uh, you know, culpability and responsibility in this, you know, horror show playing out in Ukraine, but this push to always whitewash NATO to make it uh, sound mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, we have pushed peace when we sabotaged it at every possible opportunity. Uh, it's just so strange to me that this fits in the wider narrative of we care, like we care about Ukrainians. Because for me, all of this is just one long evidence of uh, yeah using Ukrainians uh, as as an instrument, as a tool. And that's why also um, yeah sorry for not to be too long. That's why I also said to to Alexander like I, I liked what you said that the Ukrainians might wake up one day and realize that they've been used or as we already said Professor Kachanovsky because you know this we refer to the Chechens but certainly the Kurds would also feel the same way Uh, you know how many times have we said oh we care about the Kurds we're going to help them to the extent we can use them against someone against Iraq against Syria and as soon as they used up their utility you know they're thrown away I think uh, it's cynical and uh, it's I don't know for me I'm just, just a bit appalled this is always being done in the name of empathy and caring so uh, anyway, so now there wasn't a question at the end there. 
just, just the running comment. Yes, if I can add that, yeah, I agree with uh, Minsk Poznan was an important comparison with other conflicts because it was very clear that, uh, like in the case of Moldova, uh, secession of Tunisian Republic, that Russia, uh, they supported militarily by uh, using the military, uh, the army which was deployed in Tunisia to support a separate secession of this region from Moldova. And the same could have happened in Ukraine because, uh, and also that in case of um, Georgia, when uh, Georgia, Sakashvili tried to take back uh, South Ossetia by force in August of 2008. This, again, this Russia also intervened in this case. So this was very clear that Russia would, again, intervene in case of a conflict in Ukraine, and they did this after by annexing Crimea, after this Maidan massacre, and also they took also to support separatists, first in Drekia, and then by uh, direct military interventions in August of 2014 and um, and in winter um, 2015 and uh, finally uh, there was uh, full, uh, there was invasion of uh, Ukraine by Russia uh, and I think this is I think very important but uh, I think that Minsk agreement provided opportunity for Ukraine and for Western uh, for also for Russia to resolve this conflict peacefully it was a real possibility similarly to, to what was Peace deal, similar peace deal was offered uh, in Tunisia, which you mentioned, like de facto autonomy, but basically, which would mean de facto conf- not federal state, but the confederation, because autonomy, mm-hmm. very kind of large autonomy, like uh, which would influence even foreign policy. So, this was de facto confederation system, but this could have uh, prevented uh, kind of uh, escalation of the conflict in uh, into war between Ukraine and Russia, and also. In case of uh, European Union membership, this was a NATO membership. I wrote about this as well in my studies and said that uh, this was possible to prevent such a war and avoid such a war if uh, Ukraine uh, kind of uh, agreed to be in a neutral country, not to join NATO, because NATO membership was not like in any case, because uh, Western countries basically they do not um, want to sacrifice their own uh, kind of uh, their own people. On uh, military process to fight Russia in Ukraine because there was real danger, uh, kind of, of, of being involved in this. So they would not accept Ukraine into this, uh, in NATO for this reason. But I think if they cared about Ukraine and Ukrainians, it was very easy to kind of to, to do this by offering Ukraine prospect of European Union membership. Uh, if Ukraine would fulfill all the conditions like democracy and uh, like corruption and so on, and the rule of law, which would provide, provide uh, benefit, which would be very beneficial for Ukraine and would, could also have been able to solve and prevent breakup of Ukraine because EU supported the membership of um, all countries in Balkans, the former Yugoslavia, including Kosovo and, and uh, Ukraine. But they refused to provide such a prospect for European Union membership for, for Ukraine. And I wrote about this in Opera, going back to uh, more than 20 years, that the only, the only kind of possibility for Ukraine to avoid, to become like a Western democracy and to avoid the backup, similarly to Moldova, was uh, basically to kind of uh, to join the European Union or to become, uh, to, to have prospect of European Union membership, which would be incentive to resolve conflict peacefully and not to... Um, policy to respect for minorities and so on, to, and, and the rule of law. But I think in this case, uh, the Western countries decided to use Ukraine 
instead as a proxy against Russia and not treat it as a, as a equal country, which would be worth basically joining as a kind of a, as member of European Union. And I think in this case, this is a kind of very negative quality in this regard. And, and uh, even so, it's justified by all this uh, kind of idealistic uh, kind of support for Ukraine, but in practice, this is actually using Ukraine for their own geopolitical goals. And I think this is very dangerous and very uh, problematic. And, uh, and um, for this reason, also, media is not a reliable source. And, uh, and uh, especially also Western politicians are also not very reliable because uh, uh, according to my research, I did content analysis of all media coverage, Western media coverage, in particular US media coverage of, um, of communist countries. And it's very, very easy to see that basically this coverage does not, did not follow uh, like facts even before this war, before Russian invasion of Ukraine. Basically, Ukraine was uh, a coverage of Ukraine and many other post-Soviet and post-communist countries was based on uh, basically what is called indexing theory of political communication when the media basically represents or just follows narrative of their own political elite, basically government and opposition uh, in this regard. So basically, Western media now follows uh, Western governments in uh, in covering Ukraine, avoiding Ukraine and not what uh, facts on the ground. The same applies to Maidan massacre. So, because there is no debate in the West, no political debate in the West about Maidan massacre, so Western media does not do any debate about this kind of one. Do not um, basically ignores evidence which which is kind of which I mean evidence and beyond any reasonable doubt showed this was false flag massacre is in one of right and Maidan opposition oligarchy opposition, but they don't do this because this there is no debate in the Western politi political system and the same applies to current war between Russia and Ukraine, there is also almost no debate among Western governments or politicians, including especially European Union. They just kind of accepted U.S. policy in this regard, and the same applies to even many opposition parties. They united. So there is, I think, another issue is that the politicians basically kind of act now without kind of a, uh, There is no debate among Western politicians in this case about uh, kind of major political parties or major political politicians, and this, uh, I think, very dangerous development as well, because there is no possibility that media would uh, take debates, because if if there was a discussion in, in Western um, parliaments, for instance, or Western um, different political parties have debates about this issue, or raise questions about Maidan massacre, then there was possibility that this was, the, again, media would pay attention, but because there is no such debate, in such case, there is also no media coverage, which also explains basically why we get in such a um, kind of a narrative, which is uh, basically a politically motivated narrative, which has little to do with reality, but is used to kind of also, um, a lot of people just take this narrative at face value and they do not know about facts and, uh, and such developments. I thought it was interesting what you said about the West doesn't want to have its own body bags because for me it uh, almost sounded like a direct quote from uh, an article by George Soros. Uh, he, I'm not sure if you've seen it. In, in 1993, he wrote an article in favor of uh, NATO expanding and setting up partnerships with Eastern European countries. And in his words, you know, because NATO has all the strong, all the military power, uh, but uh, uh, the West we don't want to have our sons and daughters coming home in body bags. But uh, the Eastern Europeans don't, in this again, not my word, just to make it clear, in his words, the Eastern Europeans, they don't really care that much. So they don't mind having a huge amount of body bags. So the argument was, uh, this is a good way for NATO to fight. We'll provide the weapons and we'll 
fight with the Eastern Ukrainians uh, ending up in, in yeah, because they can accept the amount of body bags. Now, uh, obviously, George Soros is not the official spokesperson of NATO. I'm not in, in, in suggesting this, but uh, but it is some. It is a very strange. Um, if you look at the media, the narrative, and our politicians, the way they're speaking about the, the casualness of sending Ukrainians to the front and and dying, for you know, it's it's just uh, it's, it's it's very strange that there we would not talk in this way if it was our own. If with tens of thousands of our young men were being sent to be slaughtered on the front, we we would we would talk about finding a compromise. We would talk about negotiations. We wouldn't be so casual about this. I think so. It, there is there is a I think something uh, yeah somewhat ex- exploitative uh, behind this whole thing. And I'm thinking especially about all these videos now appearing. It was even covered by Radio Free Europe of. Uh, yeah, this young Ukrainian men w- w- walking on the street, being dragged into cars. This was part of the recruitment process. So this is recognized. Not ju- it's not from Russian media; it's from Western media. Not just Western media, but uh, Radio Free Europe, which is pretty much American propaganda, uh, you know, uh, yeah, channel, and still recognizing that uh, this this is a this is a problem uh, that these videos are going around, people being dragged out of their houses and off the street. And and we, and we were casual about it. We would never accept this if this was our own people, you know, if this was ours. I just, um, it's very, yeah, no, I, I just picked up on the, the on, the, on that comment. It's, it sounded very much like George Soros for a second. That's what's mm-hmm. my point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I agree because I, I think I did not expect that the Western policy would be kind of, you know, uh, to such extent openly using the can proxy with the world. Mm-hmm. Russia because it's again, very damaging to Ukraine without any prospect of, of uh, real prospect basically uh, that uh, Ukraine would win this war uh, and this is like a gamble basically I use analogy of uh, like uh, of uh, somebody somebody uh, kind of being encouraged to gamble their own all their wealth and all this all their kind of money savings and so on life savings in a casino basically because they can win they have chance to win something like black what this black Blackjack or some kind of uh, all this big uh, reward. Even so, statistically, there is no probability. Mm-hmm. Probability of doing this is very small. Basically, this is like, uh, and this would be considered to be totally unacceptable in the West to do this because there is, uh, they, and this is publicly also kind of, they publicly do not admit this by priority. This was reported in the media that Western governments recognize, specifically US governments recognize there is no real possibility that you can would be able to check back Crimea uh, or even uh, control and Donbass. Mm-hmm. But uh, they encourage in any way to do this. And I think this is why it, it's very negative and very dangerous in this case, basically using Ukrainians as a kind of to achieve such goals and uh, and uh, and preventing any discussion, rational discussion, by kind of uh, by trying to uh, using such arguments, which have nothing to do with democratic uh, system and uh, kind of and uh, liberal democracy and actually freedom of the media. So this is also very negative development, which have very significant repercussions also inside countries uh, kind of Western democracies because this undermines uh, undermines. Uh, Kind of foundations of democracies uh, that you have uh, like freedom of speech, freedom of expression, there is a kind of opposition uh, and minority rights and so on. And uh, I think this is a big tragedy for Ukraine because Ukraine uh, would like it to suffer consequences of this war for a very uh, long time. And um, and I think if the war would end, uh, then uh, Ukraine might also suffer 
similar situation what happened with Afghanistan when they also justify this basically as supporting human rights, democracy in Afghanistan, and women rights, and so on. And now, after the end of the war there, U.S. kind of withdrawal of U.S. and other Western forces, there is no basically discussion in the media. It's totally forgotten country. I think the same might happen with Libya, also Libya. There was concern about human rights and, and so on. And the Gaddafi, and then suddenly, Totally, kind of, uh, there is uh, even greater conflict, civil war, and, and uh, much greater violence, back, the first backup of Libya. But again, there is nothing, almost no concern with the same politicians who were, were saying they care about Libyan people or Afghan people or Iraqi people. So I think, in practice, this is just uh, kind of propaganda. This is just tactic. And this is, for me, kind of, this is uh, just, uh, that's why, when, because I study conflicts and I research conflicts, I also teach conflicts in different countries. So for me, this is like, uh, so what in UK is nothing new because you can compare to what happened before and Western policy in this regard also, I think, very crucial issue, which is often ignored because people just assume that uh, kind of that uh, just rhetoric by politicians, they take this at face value, especially uh, since media, mainstream media just report this as, again as a truth and not present any kind of factual evidence or just do this very selectively in order to advance their narrative and arguments specifically to support this war because mm. for geopolitical reasons, not because of uh, any any kind of ideas like democracy or freedom or kind of or sovereignty. I think, I think they don't care about this issue, but they care by basically using Ukraine and Ukrainians to achieve such goals. And again, I, I have, um, so again, I... Uh, saying this as academic research because I, uh, this is what part of my uh, studies which I uh, presented in American political science situation mm -hmm. which I'm going to publish now in academic uh, venues in uh, peer review journals in uh, also in a book about this conflict I uh, write in a book on this conflict kind of uh, about this war and, and origins of this conflict and I write in a book about my massacre so this is again uh, this is nothing kind of no, uh, this is actually based on my academic research, based on the evidence. So this is not nothing kind yeah. of, uh, based on just uh, some kind of uh, political views or something. Because again, yeah. uh, I have uh, kind of no political motivation to this. That I'm just uh, this, is, this is like professional task and professional duty, especially very important in this climate to say what actually I found, give the evidence, and uh, because the consequences of this war can, and the conflict in UK, which is already escalated and can escalate further, is uh, can be very damaging because this can be. <laughs> Possibility of um, this conflict becoming nuclear war, which I think could become a real possibility if again. Um, uh, can I just also just point out again that uh, because it's a very important point that Professor Kachanovsky made, it isn't just in Ukraine that his evidence has been cited in or, or, or evidence that he cites has been used in court. Professor Kachanovsky has been an expert in contested court proceedings, and his evidence was accepted in court. So it has achieved acceptance at that most rigorous level by people, judges, who are supposed to examine evidence. And I completely agree. By the way, I just wanted to mention a fact, gentlemen, about how the situation has deteriorated in terms of public debate in Britain. About three weeks ago, I attended a, a, a conference, a, well, a conference, a meeting, a public protest, if you like, which was which was brought together by people who were opposed to British policy and Western policy in Ukraine. And the venues, there was an enormous problem finding venues because the 
venues that agreed to host this event were repeatedly threatened. And some of those threats apparently extended to threats of violence. And from what I understand, the British police refused to investigate them, even though threats of violence are a crime. Now, I have attended protests many times in Britain over a variety of issues. I've never known that to happen before in Britain. Eventually, um, the protest was held on the premises of a diplomatic mission. In other words, which is because it was in, you know, protected by a diplomatic mission, not from Russia, by the way, from a, a Latin American country. Um, th that was the only venue that could be found. But this in Britain, in London, where we've had a history of peaceful protests going all the way back to, again, the 1800s, I mean, is a shocking development. And it shows the extent to which these cynical practices using East Europeans as cannon fodder in NATO wars, using Ukraine as a chess piece in a geopolitical conflict, constructing our narratives around that. Because one of the good things to say is that I think if people in the West knew what our governments had been up to, they would not be supporting this situation in Ukraine. They would certainly support peace there. Well, look at the damage it's doing. And it's, as I said, undermining <clears throat> our democracies, just as it's destroying Ukraine. Well, I think it's good yeah, as well to yeah, look at uh, previous conflicts to see the direction this is going. Because, uh, yeah, as you both mentioned, Afghanistan, this was, uh, mm. you know, whenever we mobilize for war, it's always in the name of uh, love and care. So, when, for example, there was a drop off in support for the Afghanistan war in in Afghanistan. They they uh, yeah they, they they found out that you know well the Europeans are quite sympathetic about the women rights. So suddenly. They rebranded it as you know Afghanistan. We're there for the women. We have to help them, and you know so. So again, it's all about help and care. And these poor you know uh, people who just want freedom, and then uh, you know to, to to push the war. But then once once it failed, it didn't work. Uh, well, what happened? Well, two things. One, uh, you know, freeze all their money. So now you're having a humanitarian crisis there. Uh, you know, so this, so this is how much you cared, and the second is you forget about it. Uh, like, and, and this is like, you know, how, how will we live with it? Well, one day we just turn off the TV. They don't, all well, the media don't report it anymore, and I think that's that could happen now too with Ukraine as well. If uh, mm. if uh, the say yeah, if mm. if the well, Ukraine begins to collapse, you, you know, NATO, all well, we we we're gonna lose. I think uh, the way we deal with it, as you know, from Bosnia to Afghanistan, we just. If we forget about it, we 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 leave it there, and then uh, and then it's just another victim on the road. So, uh, anyways, I was just going to say, we, I think we've gone off for more than well over two hours. So, um, uh, shall we wrap this up? <laughs> well, again, can I just say a wonderful conversation, and my great apologies once more for for joining it late. But I think we've learned a huge amount today, and I think anybody who wants to know about the history of Ukraine and where 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 things went wrong owes. Professor Kochanowski, an enormous debt. And I'm going to say this, Professor Kochanowski, they may be trying to keep your work from getting the attention that it deserves, but it is there, and one day it will get that attention. There's that expression in Britain 
the truth will out and the truth will one day out about Maidan. And when it does, it will be to you that people will go. Yeah, again, thank you. Thank you. This is, uh, again, was a very interesting, very useful, yeah. very important uh, topic to discuss. And I think, uh, thank you for your comments and invitation. I enjoy uh, talking uh, to you. And uh, again, uh, this is, I think, a very good venue that now possibility to discuss such uh, such issues and such topics kind of, because it's very important not only to understand this conflict but also they are very important to Ukrainians and to religious if you can to this conflict and how to peacefully resolve this conflict and end this war because uh, and also kind of uh, kind of uh, to have justice in this case of mass matter which is uh, I think would uh, still influence Ukrainian politics and uh, would work for a very long time because of enormous uh, consequences which it had already. So I think this is a very crucial issue and thank you for such opportunity. This was a very nice uh, opportunity and um, I enjoyed uh, my talking to you and uh, again, very good questions. So thank you. Yeah, let me also finish off by uh, thanking you. So okay, I've been reading your research for a while so and uh, seeing you. So it's uh, yeah, it was a good, uh, <laughs> it was a great uh, to be able to have you on. So uh, thanks a lot, Professor Kachanovsky. And uh, Yes, uh, thanks for the people who have been watching. Bye. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Bye.